Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredis. Yay, applause. A Dance with Dragons is the longest of the books so far. It's also the darkest and least understood, thanks to being the most recent. It's the culmination, also so far, of George R. Martin's style, honed over the course of the prior books and the rest of his career. It has the extended length of A Storm of Swords, the expanded pacing of A Feast for Crows. It brings POVs together like A Clash of Kings and has the setup of A Game of Thrones. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions. You can also send questions and comments and observations ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media outlets and participating in the discussion. Or, hey, you can just post and leave if that's your way. <laughs> Facebook, Flick, Discord, and Slack are the ways to do that. Also, you can interact with me on Twitter as well, at Westeros History. Please check out the Isle of Faces. That's Joe Buckley's podcast. Every week, he is in tandem with us, recording his own extra takes, expanding on each chapter. There's always more to say. And, of course, he has also put his work into the main episode here that we're talking about right now. Also, please check out Nina's work on Tumblr. That's Good Queen Alley with one L. And her thoughts are throughout every episode as well. Some particularly good takes this week. Join us on Patreon if you wish to support us financially. We also have lots of bonus episodes. We have episodes on Gagasos. We have an episode on the North Remembers chapter. We have some cool stuff like that. We also have the benefit of removing any network ads when you're listening to Valerie Reedus. Yeah, it gets you through a little more efficiently. Uh, you can also support us on Anchor. That is Spotify's company. They bought them uh, with their large network of expanding excellence. And Anchor's a, a wonderful host for us these days. We switched over to them in April. Been very happy with that. <laughs> Today we have John 2. The gang reenacts the Tower of Joy, a.k.a. Ed fetches a block. Tyrion 3, Blackfires, Assemble, a.k.a. the gang meets Duck and Egg. Davos 1, the gang goes to the sisters, a.k.a. Webbed Fingers and Red Herrings. And finally, John 3, One Realm, One God, One King, a.k.a. the one with non-mans burning. Mm-hmm. We have some significant John Davos, Tyrion parallel storytelling here in that they're all dealing with concealed identities and things of that nature. There's a lot of concealed identities and deceptions of that nature. John's been a false identity all along, not beknownst to himself. But the baby swap, of course, is something newer this time around, meaning him doing the baby swap, not being the one who is swapped. Stannis as Azor High also is a bit of a false identity slash deception, though it's not an intentional one, as we learn much later. Melisandre is sincere. Of course, here we have one that they're not sincere about. They know that Manson Rattleshirt is a deception. They're uh, pulling that one off, etc. Of course, we have that with the Blackfires and Young Griff. There is a lot of false identities and deceptions going on in that plot line. A lot of characters who aren't who they say they are. And as Tyrion likes to point out, a couple who are exactly who they say they are. <laughs> then we also have, it's not this week, 
But Quentin and company are also a whole bunch of deceptions and false identities. And while we're at it, why not mix in the three-eyed crow and cold hands? We, they just got fed Night's Watch deserters and was told they were pork. We've got Bran pretending to be dead. We've got all sorts of things like that. We've got the night lamp today. That's really interesting. That's certainly a deception. A false light is a little different than a false identity, but it's a, it's a similar con, uh, conception here. We also have people hiding at different places. We have people passing through. Tyrion hiding at Illyrio's manse. Can't allow anyone to know he was there. Ditto Davos at Sweet Sister. Godric Borrell's final words to him. And Davos confirming, I was never here. And that was made possible because of a similar example that happened to Lord Godric Borrell's father when Ned Stark passed through and ditto, he was never there. We also have one little other fun parallel. There's a lot of lore world building in this episode. The Mark of the Beast is pointed out by Jano Slint as to Jon Snow, uh, reference to him being a ward. But we also have the Mark of the Borels with their creepy webbed fingers and hands. Creepy because it's lasted for 5,000 years. If it occurs naturally in the world, it's not creepy. John 2. The gang reenacts the Tower of Joy, a.k.a. Ed, fetches a block. A particularly important and memorable chapter, even if you missed the fact that it's this reenactment of the Tower of Joy circumstances, well, this chapter's still hard to forget because it's the execution of Janos Slint and... That's very interesting because it tests us a bit. We don't want to be vindictive people. We don't want to kill and feel good about it. But with Jano Slint, it's hard to not feel good about seeing him die. That guy is just so awful. It just encapsulates so many character traits that we dislike, that we find disagreeable, that we find hateful. Now, it's trying to save a boy through painful means. Well, yeah, metaphorically and literally while only metaphorically trying to kill the boy in himself and in Sam, hmm, this one is very powerful. It's true even though we don't want to repeat the parts of this chapter that were covered already in Sam 1, A Feast for Crows. This is the famous overlapping John-Sam portion. And there's a lot to say even without rehashing the things we talked about in that first one. It starts like this. John Snow read the letter over until the words began to blur and run together. It's very reminiscent of John's problem of not being able to agree to Stannis' deal back in his first chapter. Except this time, John seems much more agitated because, well, he's thinking about the Lannisters. This is a deal with people that he really hates. And he doesn't hate Stannis. He doesn't dislike Stannis nearly <laughs> to the, anywhere near the degree he has these feelings for the Lannisters. As Joe points out, this is one of the most constant arcs for Dance John. Dance, John. I like that term. We'll see this battle waged throughout. I would do this if I were a Stark, but I'm not. I'm a crow, so I can't. So John, in other words, it's an, sort of an identity battle where he still has that Stark loyalty. He still is a Stark, but he technically signed that away with his job, especially with Lord Commander. Remember how much this tore at him when he first joined the Watch, when he flat out ran away in order to uh, help Rob and to help avenge Ned's death. Very much he's been fighting that all along. Now, it's, uh, it's come a long way since there, but it still pulls at him. And it's going to be even harder when 
Melisandre starts mentioning his sister to him and, and saving her. Sam and John debate here, similarly to how Davos and Lord Boral debate Stannis' chances, but with one huge difference. The turning point in that chapter, the thing that Davos realizes is the only reason he's alive is that Tywin is dead and that Cersei is in charge. If Tywin were still alive and in charge, Davos would have been executed there at Sweet Sister. Sam and John are not taking Tywin into account because they won't learn that until the next chapter that he's dead. Now, the main part here, John's concern over a child's life is a direct callback to the man who raised him, the same man who pretended his mother was a wet nurse, just like Gilly is pretending. Or, well, no, she's not pretending. She really is a wet nurse. Eddard Stark was worried about a Baratheon killing John, just as John is worried about a Baratheon, or at least his red priestess, killing a kid who will later be named Aemon, which might have been John's intended name. What's more, we saw a lot of this chapter through Sam's POV early in A Feast for Crows, so what George has managed to pull off right in front of our own eyes is a plot line where John unwittingly repeats many of the events of his own birth, and he showed it to us in two different books. <laughs> so he did it twice. If you didn't catch the mystery of John's birth the first time through, like if you weren't keyed into R plus L equals J, then you certainly couldn't have caught the meta of this repeat version. But even those fully keyed into John's parentage, even if you read this book 100% sold on R plus L equals J, you still could have easily missed it. I did. At least the first time. So it's really quite brilliant that he just puts it right in front of us twice. And it's still really easy to miss because there's just so much else going on. And it's just so well done. It's, it's the mark of the master. <laughs> So John does, though, interestingly enough, we have to consider that he may realize it later. He obviously can't figure it out now. He doesn't even know the circumstances of his own birth, so he can't put it all, all the pieces together. But he will eventually learn about his birth, and then he might go, whoa, so Ned did that, and then he did that, and then he might realize that he did the same thing. He's like, whoa, then I repeated, oh my God. <laughs> so it could be quite a bunch of, of, quite a thunderous realization for John to happen all at once like that. Now. He, of course, feels really guilty about it. If so does Ned. That's one thing they have in common. Promise me, Ned, and all the lies he has to tell and, and all these things he has to, this burden he has to bear, he has to lie to Catelyn. He thinks so anyway, and all these other things. So it's very difficult. And John is feeling some of the same things, at least relevantly similar. And I wonder, John has a, a much bigger challenge than Ned that Ned did not face, which is the freaking long night. <laughs> and I wonder if that's the kind of microcosm of the sacrifices needed to survive what could be just an unbelievably painful and excruciating experience and difficult with all the starvation and, and lack of resources and things like that. Is Gilly's sacrifice just the beginning? Is that, are we going to kind of see more and more of this type of thing necessary? Not baby swapping, not that specific thing, but really, really tough choices or people ordering people to do terrible things to prevent more terrible things from happening. I mean, one ter doing one terrible thing to prevent two terrible things, in a nutshell, I guess that's the right play. But in, in, in reality, it's, it's hard to do those things and, and measure them that way. And John's leadership style is a real issue of this book. He's trying to kill the boy, and he doesn't quite get it. He do, he's a little 
maybe not even a little, he's too harsh. I think he, he sees this harshness with maturity, and that's not really always true. It's something I indicated last time. It's partly just who he's had as part of his upbringing. He hasn't had any sort of soft hand to guide him at any point. It's all been kill the boy or this is the life you have and, you know, bastards have a tough life and all this stuff. He's never, he's never been coddled um, apart from having more privilege than most people. He's, he's never been given that kind of education, even though he's had plenty of education. And you can see Eamon sets the tone here by telling it how, where this all came from. It was Egg, who of course is going to pop up a lot this episode, at least in John 2 and Tyrion 3. And how that was an important thing for him. His egg was a little boyish still and becoming king. He had to become a little more responsible, a lot more mature perhaps. But again, that message isn't quite... Some, there's something lost in the translation there. Egg was, was still very compassionate. Egg's ruling style, though there's a lot missing that we don't know about it. He certainly, we do know, was pro-commoner. He certainly, which implies a certain level of compassion and understanding of what they went through. John is starting off by having less compassion. He sets up this conversation with Gilly by talking to Sam, very unfriendly. It's almost like he's only a Lord Commander. It's like he, John, you can still be Sam's friend and be the Lord Commander. You don't have to completely cease being friends with everyone because you have this job. That's not maturity. In fact, I would argue that's immature. Everyone needs friends, I think. Maybe not everyone. But uh, you don't have to throw your friends away. That's not, maturity is not throwing away your friends. Joe points to a specific detail here that I think is very telling. We saw earlier John be somewhat friendly to some of Stannis' guards and saying, look, you, you know, you need a warmer pair of gloves. That'll, you know, they'll head over there, they'll get you one. That's reasonable. That's good. And that's good leadership. But when Sam comes in and the raven bites him, pecks through his gloves, John's like, wear thicker gloves, dude. <laughs> it's just very it's kind of dismissive of the problem. Now, to be fair, Sam needs to be toughened up perhaps a little bit. But on the other hand, that it's just it's quite a contrast to how he treats these two scenarios that are very similar. One of them is his friends. He's less compassionate towards his friend than this rando guard. But he is all, I'm criticizing him here, but he's also really, really good at so many of these other things. He makes the rounds of Castle Black each day. As Joe points out, he's a lot like Ned, talking to all the men, letting them see him, and being present. And that's undoubtedly good. That's high marks for that one. Now, back to Gilly, though. He, he forces her when I think it would have been better to appeal to the need here. But again, this is not how John himself was educated. John was not taught to appeal to need. He was, he was taught that you do your duty. And John sees this as Gilly's duty in, on some level, even though, because, well, this child will die if you don't do this. And to him, that means it's your duty. And I sympathize with that take, but that doesn't mean, but I don't sympathize with how he delivered all this. I don't think he had to make Gilly hold her hand over the candle. This is an incredibly, incredibly hard thing he's asking. He doesn't need to force it. He just, you know, she, she would have come around, I think. So uh, uh, this is a bit rough. I hope he's not this harsh with other people in the future. 
And but we do see it somewhat. It, he never has the opportunity to do anything quite this harsh. Never to take a child from from a mother, but he does make very tough decisions as Lord Commander that we'll start to see in this chapter very much are disagreed with. And that, of course, leads to his assassination, which was not justified, but had he led differently, might not have happened. He's just, his leadership style is very much forcing things on people. And I don't think that's a a good way to go about it. Nina writes that this is perhaps the first test of John's chapter, what to do with Gillian Mance's son, and it might be the cruelest thing John ever does. John is probably right in terms of Mance's son being in danger if Dennis were willing to sacrifice his own nephew and Davos is the only reason that didn't happen. Then why not this kid who, who is less connected to him but has this so-called royal blood? So again, I don't think we need to resell that point. John's right enough that this is a danger but again, that doesn't mean he had to talk to Gilly like that and handle it this way and, and sell his point that way. So this is that, this is still that kill the boy thing. He, Joe writes a similar point here. The one he, he literally thinks to himself, kill the boy while forcing this girl to feel pain. This is definitely not the boy we know as he commands Gilly to hold her hand over a candle. And interestingly too, this is a, a part of the Tower of Joy connection here. Nina writes that Gilly is sort of in this Catelyn role of the Ned, Liana, John dilemma that she's been kind of being forced to go along with this. The difference with Catelyn, of course, is that she was not in on the secret, but she still had to live with the circumstances. Well, the alternative is pretty bad, right? It would be pretty horrible of Ned to abandon his dead sister's infant son, but the preferred alternative still caused Catelyn a lot of pain. And that pain, of course, was pushed back onto John. And again, so it's another example of, well, that was a rough thing to do, bring this other child into your home. But the alternative was to let the child die or to be killed. So it's, a, it's another, that's part of what makes this so parallel to the Tower of Joy is that the, it was bad choice or much worse choice. Now, Gilly has a choice, choice in quotes, in the matter the same way Ned does. Ned didn't really have a choice, like we said. Like, he, he was the driver of this situation. He was the one that could have said no, but Ned couldn't really say no to his sister and this child, newborn. He's not going to really say, just like Gilly wouldn't have really said no here. And that's why I think John should have convinced her and not ordered her, because she wouldn't have said no. She would not have walked away from that child and said, yeah, let it burn. And... While John is promising Gilly's son will be taken care of, Gilly is hearing what she was trained to believe was her worst nightmare. It's really important to put yourself in Gilly's perspective here. It's hard to because it's like, hey, take on this incredible pain for a minute or try to sympathize with what's this incredible pain. That we think of the Night's Watch as good people. We know that, yeah, they're not all good people, but they're a good institution ultimately. They stand for good things, especially when, when people like John are in charge. But Gilly was raised to believe that the Night's Watch is is not good. She's obviously come around on that. She likes Sam and she sees that everything she's taught, a lot of it wasn't accurate. But still, she still has these emotions. She still has this natural rejection of the watch and this this sort of habitual uh, reaction to them. So it's really quite a reversal. It's really quite a parallel. She was saved, or he was saved, his baby was saved from being given to the others. And now he's being given to the crows. The two 
biggest powers that exist amongst the wildlings as enemies, the others and the Night's Watch. Those are the the two forces they're caught between. Her child was going to be given to one, and now it's being given to the other. I mean, it's better than becoming given to the others, but she's certainly capable of understanding that difference, obviously. But it's still really awful. And John does not really grasp that. And, And that is part of the criticism here is that he's, his complete lack of sympathy is not so good. If we were to put ourselves in the baby's position, <laughs> let alone, you know, we've, we're, we're trying to put ourselves in Gilly's position, think about what, this baby's life so far. If it could talk, <laughs> this is what he would say. The Night's Watch mutiny killed Grandpa Dad before he could give me to Ice Demons. Saw an undead ranger's ravens kill other undead rangers before they could kill us. Bumped into a green seer and his friends and direwolf and a small hairless giant. I don't know what that was about. At a talking gate in the wall. I could have gone south to sunny Old Town, but Jon Snow made me swap moms with a kid set to be sacrificed to a fire god. And the ice demons and whites are still coming. So now I live at a 700-foot wall. (laughs) It's just this baby's life so far. Like, wow, that is a lot for an infant (laughs) to have. I was like, he's going to tell these stories later. A Song of Ice and Fire, the footnote, 20 years later, this kid's going to be like, yeah, he's going to be telling these stories at a tavern and no one's going to believe him. He's like, you didn't, you didn't do all that. Now, is he actually safe as a baby? That's a big question. John tells Gilly that there's no reason for Mel to burn this child. Now, is that true? Hmm. I'm not sure it is. I'm not sure it is. Mel has burned non-royal-blooded people before. Usually, the well, actually, always, they did something wrong. Alistair Florent did something wrong. He was a, treat, a traitor. And the cannibals in Stannis' army later, well, that was something wrong. I don't think you can argue this child is going to do something wrong other than existing. However, it, that isn't necessarily something to bank on. And as flick commenter Rolling Knight points out, the child's identity is unknown to Melisandre. So, and now if, if John is stabbed, then, well, if Melisandre thinks that's still Craster's son or Mance's son, then maybe she'll just go right on ahead and burn the child, not knowing that it's not really Mance's kid. However, I think we can explain that because it does seem that later we get confirmation that Val knows, Val has noticed Val knows the children were swapped, and she says Melisandre knows. She seems quite sure Melisandre's aware of the baby swap and just didn't care or has her own reasons. So that would have been really horrible, and it still could happen if, if Val is wrong that John is resurrected via the burning of Mance's child, and he's aware that it's not actually Mance's child. He sees this happening through Ghost's eyes. Whew. Now, this is. Nina writes something about Sam and his reaction to being told he's going to be a maester. His reaction to being sent to the South is more overt than Gilly. Gilly handles losing her son better than Sam handles being told he's going to be a maester. But it's just for similar reasons. This is trauma that they are feeling from the abusive father that taught them to denigrate these things like the watch or old t- uh, or the, the citadel 
Nina also wonders if John was bothered by Gilly's insistence that a mother can't leave her son or else she's cursed forever. Because John, whoever his mother was, he perceives that she left him. So that's, that's a personal shot there. Now, of course, Gilly obviously doesn't know she's saying that. And John, it doesn't register in John's mind. We don't see him react to that. But subconsciously, it might sting a little bit because he, he feels like he was left by his mother too. Now, the raven, let's pay attention to the raven for a minute. It, it seems to weigh in on some of these takes here. It seems to agree with Sam or agree with John telling Sam not to show his fear. When, when John orders Sam not to show his fear, the, the raven goes, obey. <laughs> and, and then, but the raven says no about the baby swap, during the baby swap. Maybe it's just mimicking Gilly, you know, We've seen so much of this raven talking as if it's blood raven or saying things that can't be dismissed as just random. So you got to wonder if maybe the blood raven has seen something about this and doesn't thinks the baby swap's a bad idea. Maybe because the South it actually isn't safer because of Euron. I don't know, but it's an interesting point to consider that the raven is like, uh-uh. The raven also says die. So <laughs> he's, yeah. One other thing the raven says here, uh, they talked for a while of Manson, Stannis, and Melisandre Vashai until the raven ate the last corn kernel and screamed blood. <laughs> it's like, what? The raven's really mad that the food ran out? Is that a cannibal reference? I don't, I don't know, but the raven was very talkative this chapter. Another quick quote, Ghost slept at the foot of the bed that night, and for once, John did not dream he was a wolf. So that's very telling. John is dreaming of being skin changing in his sleep every night, just about. It's peaking almost. And we, we saw it in John 1. His chapter started that way, but we don't see it in this chapter directly. So of course, the, the whole thing with the paper shield is pretty important. John really doesn't like doing it. He doesn't like anything to do with Tywin and the Lannisters. And, but with Jano Slint, it's, it's, he... He almost goes back on what he's just done. He's, he's like, okay, fine. The paper shield's better than nothing. He agrees with Sam's points there. But executing a guy who's out here claiming, I have friends in King's Landing. Tywin Lannister is my friend, blah, blah, blah. That's obviously, if that's true, if Janos really, if they really do care about Janos Slint, then executing the Lannister toady is not exactly going to put them in good graces with the Lannisters. The paper shield is definitely going to be worthless in that spot. But hey. What can you do? Janos disobeyed a direct order. I mean, this isn't that much of a moral conflict. It could have been. It was set up to be. It was, John was wrestling with it. He's like, I have blood between my family and this guy's family and personally. It's outside their relationship and directly related to their relationship. And it could have been a real moral conundrum for John, what he's going to do. Like, how do I handle this guy who's going to want to, he's going to come kill me and still do my duty? Well, that problem rears its ugly head with Ramsey Bolton in a much larger stage later in the book. Slint just makes it easy here. He goes, you just really can't refuse a direct order in any military style organization I've ever heard of with the rare exception of an order being illegal or unconstitutional. That, that There are provisions for that in most militaries. But that's not a thing here. Slint has no sort of exception he can stand on. He just flat out doesn't want to. This is the start 
of difficult judgment calls for John in this book that will lead to his choices being severely reprimanded and severely questioned, even by us, even by us readers. We're sitting here, I don't know if John made the right call there, or I don't know if John handled it right. Like, maybe the decision is right, but the execution isn't right. Execution, I don't mean execution isn't killing, I mean going through forward with the plan. And it's the same with Daenerys, and it's the same with Bran, where the choices, the moral conundrums get harder and harder the deeper they go in this book. And it's probably going to continue for the rest of their arcs, if not for the rest of the books entirely. These leadership decisions keep getting more difficult. For Danny, she's like, okay, well, how am I going to, I have to kill to stop more killings. Well, how is, you know, where's the, where's the ethical center in, in that? John, same thing. He's got to execute, execute his own brothers, or he's got to do things like make alliances with the wildlings who have been their enemy for thousands of years. These are unprecedented types of decisions that need to be made. And well, the people who aren't in the leadership position don't see all that nuance and how difficult these choices are. But this is so easy. This is why George is building up. Slint made it as easy as possible. Disobey a direct order. The moral conundrumness of it all is removed. Just, okay, well, this guy's a traitor. I can execute him and no one can really argue because his, his crime is that blatant. Like, Slint for a second, like, puts his hand on his sword, thinks about it, and is like, all right, never mind, go ahead. When Slint shows up, it's very provocative. John is literally greets him with naked steel, naked Valyrian steel, in fact, and thinks about cutting his head off and how it would become somewhat pleasant. But to John's credit, he doesn't do that until Slint, there's really no other choice. And John doesn't go straight to the execution. He gives him a day, a night to sleep on it. You can't really say John just rushed into it. So I give John a lot of credit there. Slint just threw it in his face. John still was patient, didn't yell didn't lose his cool, just acted like a leader, and, John, and Janice Lynn acted like a child. Nina also writes, the cleaning lawn claw not only is this sign of hostility <laughs> from an old northern social tradition there, but it's straight up foreshadowing for the end of the chapter that he's, well, I am going to kill this guy. <laughs> and it's also a, a sign of his setting aside the trappings of power, something that's a more important concept we talked about last chapter and is going to continue to rise in importance. Doing it himself is very Northern, but it's also not the trappings of power. Having someone else do that would be ex exercising his power. Nina writes how this is also a bit of an inverse of A Storm of Swords where John refuses to kill the old man. He just couldn't do it. That old man had done nothing wrong, even though the man was going to die anyway, even though it would blow up John's whole subterfuge, even though John himself would be put at risk, he just could not do it. And here, though, well, <laughs> this guy clearly did it. This is the opposite. There is no argument about that old man's crime here. It's just the most blatantly obvious crime. And it's also similar to Rob's moment with the great John. You can't have loud, powerful sub-commanders just openly questioning your authority, calling you boy, things like that. And well, um, there was a lot less talking about Rob as a boy when Grey Wind bit off two of Grey John's fingers. So severing two fingers is a little lower impact than severing a head, but Grey John wasn't a straight up traitor. 
So that's pretty cool. There's a lot more parallels here too, though. It's interesting. I find it funny that Lord Slint, who was Lord of Harrenhal and was going to be in charge of Greyguard, two different old ruined castles that he never went to. He never saw either of them. <laughs> I, I like how John and Tyrion's old connection, which almost certainly will become a connection again. It was probably a setup when they met really early on in the series. They both have this moment with Janos Slint when Tyrion is Almost only a few minutes away from sending Slint to the wall, he starts uh, insulting him and asking questions. And he's like, brings up his sons. And Slint says, what are my sons to you, dwarf? And here he says, you can stick your order up your bastard's arse. It's, it's very similar, just flagrant uh, insubordination. Also quite ironically, I wonder if George, ironically, I did not mean that to be a pun, but it is now that I'm seeing it. I don't know if George did this on purpose. I suspect he did, but it could be a coincidence. Who is the man that seizes Janos Slint at King's Landing when he's trying to leave Tyrion? It's Sir Jaslyn Bywater, a.k.a. Iron Hand. And here, who is it that seizes him and drags him out of the cage? Iron Emmet. <laughs> so we got some, again, irony. Yes. And of course, he does the same thing when he's threatened here. He yells about who his powerful friends are. And it's funny how he can't say the same names he said before because he can't go, Tywin's my friend, when he's talking to Tyrion. Because Tyr Tyrion literally invoked his father's name to threaten Slint. So <laughs> he couldn't exactly bring up Tywin. But he still brings up Tyrion's family. He just says, Joffrey and the queen are my friends. You can't do this. Here he yells out that Tywin is his friend. Tywin would never allow this. That's ironic too because Tywin is quite dead. So yeah, Tywin isn't going to do anything for you, my man. A lot of people cite the Sansa line, including myself, cite the Sansa line where she wishes someone would throw Janos Slint down and some hero would chop off his head. Now that does happen here. Now this chapter was originally written in 2000, uh, well, when it was originally written, it was read aloud at Technicon in 2008. And originally it was hanged. He really originally was hanged. And later it was switched to the sword beheading. Some people say that this is evidence that it's, it wasn't intended to be foreshadowing from Sansa. I don't think that's the case. I, I don't know that it was foreshadowing. It may have just worked out that way. But I, I think it's entirely possible George realized he had set that up, that line with Sansa, and changed it so that those two things would line up, so that it did become foreshadowing. It, this, this is a good argument that it wasn't planned that way, but that doesn't mean George can't go, oh, wait, I could connect these dots. So now it fits quite nicely. Joe writes, Janos Slim being dragged forward like a child is cowardice on show for the world. He, he tries more defiance and then the strength is gone. He's begging and John has a choice. Except he doesn't. Turning back now would be worse than letting him off in the first place. If he wants to kill the boy and let the man be born, he must do this as the first man in his life, Eddard Stark, would have done. That is a, a great lead-in to something else Nina noticed about these chapters. There's a lot of choosing by not choosing here. There's a lot of going with the default, you could, you could say. It's the same thing Lord Borel does. Lord Borel doesn't choose to ransom Davos or hang him. He just is like, well, you were never here. In this case, he, John decides all these options with Janos Slint are all worse than just going forward with the obvious. Execute the man for his treason. There, there's no better choice there. Just do the obvious. And in the case of later in this, in our series of chapters today, well, we have Melisandre arguing that everyone has to make this choice and Mance had to make this choice and all this, but it's a lot of it is actually deception because 
that wasn't really Mance. <laughs> so, you know. Joe writes, is this vengeance for Janos Slint when John kills him? Yes, it is. But is it justice? Also, yes. And that's why the conundrum is removed. That's why it's so easy. That's why this is a good start to escalating moral difficulties. This, of course, is also reminiscent of John ex- uh, of Ned executing Garrett, the Night's Watch deserter. Now, he didn't have a whole lot of choice there, given, the cir- given what he knew. But we as readers knew that it was, there were more circumstances. That, that Garrett really did see the others. He saw something that shouldn't be. So that's really, but that, of course, there's, Janice Lynn has no such excuse. <laughs> but still, it's reminiscent of that first scene. And Ned and Jon Snow have an awful lot in common beyond that. You know who else likes justice is Stannis. He gets that nod of approval at the end. And that is pretty important to showing that they're eye to eye on a lot of issues. That when Jon stands up to Stannis, well, that's, it's a matter of respect, not a matter of disagreement so much. I mean, it is a matter of disagreement, but it's respectful disagreement. And well, Jon Snow, Lord Commander, basking in the example of Eddard Stark and getting justice at the same time. Jano Slint, bad man, good riddance. The dragon steel point here is important. It's uh, reminiscent of what we pointed out at the time in the Game of Thrones prologue. The quote was, the other halted, Will saw its eyes, blue, deeper and bluer than any human eyes, a blue that burned like ice. They fixed on the longsword, trembling on high, watched the moonlight running cold along the metal. Uh, she agrees, Nina does, the dragon steel is Valyrian steel, so do I. I believe Joe does as well. And like I said, we pointed out at the time the other was looking at the sword, maybe to see if it was Valyrian steel. And Nina points to the specific rippling of the blade that is uh, known to be particularly outstanding on Valyrian steel. That might be what they were looking for. Meaning the clue that it was Valyrian steel would be those ripples. Uh, They may be able to tell from some other means by the color or something like that. But... This is another little bit of parallel storytelling. The concept of dragon steel is raised in the Tyrion chapters as they go along the Valyrian roads, which are nicknamed dragon roads. So you've got Valyrian steel, is it dragon steel? And you've got Valyrian roads, dragon roads. So it, it is a pretty straightforward connection to call them that. So I don't think there's any great mystery in the naming. The mystery is, well, there's plenty of other mysteries, but... I do think this is the same concept. Maybe it's not, maybe it's indication that the technology existed before Valyria, but I think it's just a nickname for the same process. With that, we can bring up the Jade Compendium. Eamon mentions he wants John to read that, uh, a bit of that. We'll talk about that more when we actually get to it, because John will actually look through the book. One other theme that's really omnipresent in these early chapters is John sending off his friends because he knows he can trust them. Where while Melisandre's like, you need to keep some of your friends around you. This character giant is a good example here. We have this veteran who has this inverse nickname. He's a very small man, but he has the name giant. And he's loyal, good at what he does. And it leads into, that loyalty is why John trusts him, but it leads into... Giant saying, look, man, this is a good idea, I guess, to be watching the wall more widely, but that's about all we can do is watch. If, if they come with any sort of strength, yeah, a man on top of the wall is worth 100 below, but they might come with 1,000. 
and there's only 30 of us. So that still leaves them well short. <laughs> and Raymond Redbeard is the pivot story from this because that is apparently what Raymond Redbeard did. He got some his foothold on the wall. He found a spot along the vast length of the wall that was not well patrolled, brought a bunch of climbers, and then started building defenses once he got on top of the wall. Like, built like a barricade on either side of where they had climbed up so the Night's Watch couldn't approach them. And then they set up like a big stair almost to walk people over. And that's how they got a whole army across. Pretty clever, actually. Well, now they're worried about something like that happening again because the issue has been raised. Raymond Redbeard was killed by Lord Willem, who was John's grandfather's grandfather. Now, that's still true, even if John is not Ned's son because, you know, Liana is... Ned's sister, so it's the same family tree. Artos the Implacable is mentioned here, and well, Artos has some possible vibes for John himself. Artos ruled uh, as a regent of sorts. He does have a statue, but he was never lord. His son, uh, Lord, he didn't, uh, rather, Lord William's son, Edwile, which is John's great-grandfather and Ned's grandfather, was uh, only a baby, so that's why we had a, a region situation. But the, this implacable, strong-willed, powerful warrior Stark figure really sounds like where John's headed um, because of all these theories about what he'll be like a, as a resurrected person. Plus, what we see in this scene, he's just uh, doesn't seem to have this compassion. He's just so uh, blunt and brutal uh, with his methods here. And of course, we talk about this stuff more in our Crypts of Winterfell episode, and we go through all these different characters that are buried down there, talk about the statues, Lord Willem, and all these other Stark characters, including Artos, are mentioned there. Nina, with a really nice small take here, pointing to the fact that Sam wishes he could put Ulmer's stories in a book. He really is the George of the series. He's just showing himself to be the George when he makes comments like that. It's true. And it's true. <laughs> it really would be nice if those stories, we could just have all these other characters' life stories. What a wealth of embarrassment of riches that would be, wouldn't it? A little bit of irony here, too. I wonder about this. Here's a, a quote about the Lord of Bones and Craster. That Lord of Bones, he's to be spared. Craster always swore he'd kill him if he ever showed his face about the keep. Mance never did half the things he done. So that's funny because they're... There's a basically the complaint here is that why is Mance getting executed and Rattleshirt being let to live? <laughs> well, well, the curiosity here is that Craster would kill Rattleshirt if he ever showed his face around the keep. So Rattleshirt was that so bad that even Craster hated him. That's that's really saying something. <laughs> Dornish Dame says, and Gilly bends the knee to John, only for him to say that is only for kings. <laughs> Great point. Yeah, only for kings. John is a king. I def I missed that. That's a really good one. And she also says Oswell Went was on bended knee outside the Tower of Joy in Ned's fever dream, sharpening his sword, but sort of like uh, taking a knee for the birth of the the king that had just happened upstairs <laughs> via Liana. That's pretty cool. Flick commenters, Facebook commenters, a lot of people were talking about the books meaning all the stuff in the library. Now, I didn't talk about it very much here because we did talk about it a lot in the Sam chapter where the books were a little more prominent. And we will have more time to talk about books later. Like I said, the Jade Compendium, when Sam or when John actually reads that. And of course, we're looking forward to more 
book stuff when we get to more Citadel chapters in The Winds of Winter. Guinevere Greenstones asks, are we sure the baby swap actually happened? Is there a chance that it was reversed, something like that? Uh, yes, we're sure it happened because of what I said earlier about Val. Val has taken a liking to the children and she noticed, or I don't actually, I'm not sure if she noticed or John told her, but she definitely knows. She said she likes Craster's son <laughs> when she's holding the kid that everyone is told is Dalla's baby. So she's, and then she goes on to say she's pretty sure Melisandre knows about the swap too. So yeah, we can be pretty darn sure it actually happened. Nina reminds us to bring, uh, that the Accursed King series by Maurice Druon, something we bring up every once in a while as one of the probably top three influences on A Song of Ice and Fire who knows, top three, if that's really true. But I rate it that high. There's so many no parallels. Doubt it's top five. Yeah, it's definitely top five if it's not top three. And there's a baby swap in it. <laughs> so there you go. That's part of one of the many, many parallels here. And that's uh, something that's kind of fun. So it, it, the possibility suggested in this series, which is a, a historical fiction, is that this baby swap may have really happened. We don't know that it did. But the author... Maurice Druon goes into the possibility, and it's somewhat compelling. Dornish Dame also says, I feel like Benjen joined the Night's Watch as a self-imposed penance for not protecting slash saving Liana. Ned's penance for the same guilt is raising John a daily living reminder of Liana. That is a, a theory that's been out there for a long time, and I absolutely agree that it deserves mention here. Good job, Dornish Dame. And that might, in fact, be... So we might be getting a third version of that. That's carried forward, these, these, these penance. Girl I Nettles. also real quick think it's worth mentioning, actually, that Benjamin was like 16 when he joined the Night's Watch. And of course, that's how old John is. Was that right? I thought Benjamin was a little bit younger. But anyway, they're close in age. So yeah, you're right. That's a great point. Okay, moving on. Tyrion 3, Blackfires Assemble, aka the gang meets Duck and Egg. While his last chapter, Tyrion 2, was all about foreshadowing and intrigue through dialogue and world building, this one also has foreshadowing and intrigue, but it's shown through in-world historical parallels more so than other things. From Tyrion's history to Blackfire history to Dance of the Dragons history to ancient history, in that I refer to the tale of Serwyn of the Mirror Shield and Sir Byron Swan, who was trying to recreate a legend. He was burned to death in the attempt. You can't copy a dragon. And that's a theme of the whole Blackfire arc, Varus and Illyrio's arc, I think. It's going to come down to that. There's no substitute for a real dragon. And it's brilliantly presented here that with that tale of Serwin and Eurax, of the mirror image is not a good enough thing. A copy is not good enough. It's really, really awesome. I love this chapter. Now, you can't copy a dragon, but you can dream of one, as Tyrion did in the last chapter. In this one, his knowledge of them is extremely important. But he's still drinking heavily, of course, so he starts the chapter off a little behind. He woke alone and found the litter halted. That said, though, he doesn't seem hungover, and since he's just woken up, that's actually significant. He's sober because he's just woken up, and he stays sober the whole chapter. That's interesting. We've been really paying attention to his alcohol intake. So it kind of stood out to me that he has none this whole chapter. And I think he's a little more clear. I think he's got a little more clarity. There's still a lot of things he misses. There's a lot of subtle stuff in this chapter that 
an attentive reader like myself missed many times going through this book that only fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh times or reading someone else's takes got me to some of these places. But yeah, there's a lot here. And I think it's interesting that he, he's alcohol-free for at least one chapter. He does think of drinking at one point in this chapter, thinking of, after thinking of his father, thinking, oh, I need to wash that taste away, <laughs> the taste of his dad. The first of the past events used as foreshadowing I'll highlight in this chapter is from that same anecdote that makes him want to have a drink, which is the cleaning of the drains and cisterns, which was Tyrion's gift from his father upon his 16th name day. I mean, really, you have the richest dad in the whole country, and that's what you get for your 16th is drain duty? But that's not the most relevant part. One of the things we should be looking at here is that knowledge might prove useful later when taking Casterly Rock, that castle which has never been taken, except for maybe Lynn the Clever, who took it maybe so long ago. The drains and cisterns were crucial in the TV show in that regard as well. But it was a theory. Well before the TV show had that scene, people were suspecting that this drains and cisterns stuff was going to be relevant. There's also a relevant tale, again, relating to Land the Clever, as told to us in The World of Ice and Fire. In the most common version of the tale, Lan discovered a secret way inside the rock, a cleft so narrow that he had to strip off his clothes and coat himself in butter in order to squeeze through. Once inside, however, he began to work his mischief. More irony from Tywin. There's a, there's a, we've been through so much hypocrisy and irony from Tywin. He was worried that Tyrion would bring shame down on House Lannister. That's why he gave him this job. So instead of shame, Cashley Rock's going to fall for the first time ever. <laughs> so that's what you're going to get from giving this gift to your son. Instead of him embarrassing you in the free cities, he's going to cause your castle to fall for the first time ever. Ha. But it doesn't end there. We never run out of examples of Tywin saying things that are the opposite of true. This one isn't a lie. This is his sincere belief just being wrong and it blowing up in his face a bit. George, I think, likes to do that. Have Tywin say the opposite of the truth while having him believe it. Commenter Sophia Garmiri pointed to this, which was Tyrion's request to tour the Free Cities. His response was, Tywin's response was, my brothers could be relied upon to bring no shame upon House Lannister. Because Tyrion was like, look, your brothers all went, why can't I go? He said, since neither ever wed a whore. And Nina was ready with the answer for this one. <laughs> this is really funny. We're pretty sure that Jerrion was the original husband of the sailor's wife and the father of Lana, which we detailed at the time. And we'll be seeing that firsthand when we go, we have that chapter with Jorah. So quite literally, he did marry a whore. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with marrying a sex worker, but it's Tywin's hypocrisy here is the issue. And of course, his other brother, Tygett, died of a pox. Most of the time when we're presented with a pox in this story, it's because of going to a brothel. That is the pattern that we've seen. It's not every time. So it's entirely possible that both of his brothers... (laughs) Well, anyway. Here's what I mean about Serwin and Urax, Urax, however you want to say it. I say Urax, and you'll see why in a second. And how it's a parallel to what's happening here. It's 
starts off with a little word play to set up the joke. And this is only something I caught because I read and listen. Not all, not usually at the same time, but sometimes at the same time. But I read and listen to every chapter multiple times, and this was an audio clue. He turned to Magister Illyrio. Are these two known to you, Magister? They look like outlaws. Should I find my axe? Your axe? Your axe? Your axe? Nice. Good one, George. The story itself is simple enough. Serwin used a shiny shield so that a dragon saw their own reflection instead of a dude. That tale applies to a huge number of different stories. George loves to invert the meaning of a dragon and use play with this theme. We outlined many of these examples in our episode called Serwin of the Mirror Shield. For example, the tale of Eric and Arik, one of the twins dresses as the other to get close to a dragon queen, Rhaenyra. It ends in tragedy, as the story always does, in all variations, except for the original. Only Serwin actually succeeded. Even, whether it was the literal slaying of a dragon with a mirror shield or all these variations like Eric and Arik or young Griff pretending to be a dragon, they always end in tragedy. I think that's part of one of the main themes here is you just, well, you can't fool a dragon so easily. And who's the dragon going to be this time? Not a literal dragon, but Daenerys. She's the dragon that has to be convinced. And I don't know a single loud voice in the fandom that thinks Daenerys and young Griff are going to marry. So it's kind of like he's trying to get close to her, pretending he's a dragon, holding that shield up. And that shield, that reflection was given to him by Varys and Illyrio. He sincerely believes it. John Connington sincerely believes it. What is the lesson of young Griff? What did we just learn in Tyrion's chapter, or sorry, in John's chapters? The brilliance of Stannis' sword is described as a reflection because it's not really Lightbringer. The same literary clue is used here. Stannis' Lightbringer is a counterfeit, a reflection of the real thing. Just like Sir Byron Swan wasn't really a dragon, he was a dude with a reflective shield. Just like Stannis' sword isn't a Lightbringer, this kid is not a Targaryen. He's not a real dragon. What we have in Young Griff is a Blackfire. I very strongly believe this. The more I go through this, the more solid this theory becomes. Of all the Westerosi anecdotes, George R. R. Martin would have Halden test Tyrion on. It's the one where a man pretending to be a dragon tries to get close to a real dragon and fails. <laughs> yeah. Danny was told a long while back that she'd be the slayer of lies, that she'd be dealing with a mummer's dragon. That's a brilliant piece of writing. Varus is both a mummer and it's his dragon. And this is a mummer's dragon because it's a false dragon. So it's a double meaning. Maybe you could even squeeze three or four meanings out of that probably too. Now, more of the meat of this chapter described by our title and like I said, would be delivered through these historical parallels. Well, that's an ancient historical parallel and then one from the Dance of the Dragons that was a replay of it. Egg in the Duncan Egg Tales is Aegon, later Aegon V. If this Aegon is going to be king, he'll be Aegon VI. Aegon V shaved his head to conceal his identity and he wears a straw hat. He doesn't live at court like a typical prince, but out in the world, sleeping in ditches and eating meager fare. He squires for a big knight named Dunk, who much later joins his Kingsguard. His sigil is a shooting star over a field with a tree. Now here we meet young Griff, quote, 
Tyrion craned his head to one side and saw a boy standing on the roof of a low wooden building, waving a wide-brimmed straw hat. Live and well-made youth with a lanky build and a shock of dark blue hair. The dwarf put his age at 15, 16, or near enough to make no matter. So instead of shaving his head, he dyes his hair blue. He does wear a floppy straw hat, just like Egg. Instead of Dunk, we have Duck, a knight whose sigil is a single duck over a field instead of a falling star. And he will be Aegon's first Kingsguard as well, later in the book. His upbringing, as Varys later tells a dying Kevin, is one that has an element of struggle. He's also eaten meager fare, slept on a pole boat. I think you see where I'm going with this. Here's more. Quote. Blue hair may serve you well in Tyrosh, but in Westeros, children will throw stones at you and girls will laugh in your face. The lad was taken aback. My mother was a lady of Tyrosh. I dyed my hair in memory of her. Two points there. Tyrion's take on Westeros and being judgmental towards looks they're unfamiliar with is ominous in light of both the Golden Company and Daenerys' coalition army. Point being, between those two armies and other forces that may come along too, there's a lot of things way more unfamiliar than a blue-haired boy. I mean, we've seen green-haired girls in Westeros, so <laughs> Westeros is xenophobic is the point, and a lot of different looks and styles and smells and languages will carry with it some tension and mistrust. More to the point here, the blue hair helps conceal his purplish eyes, making them look more blue. And most importantly, the first ever lady of House Blackfire, the Grand Matriarch, the mother of black dragons, wife to Damon, was Rohan of Tyrosh. She had seven sons and multiple daughters. Now here's where we get a little, where we get a little meta. When George wrote this chapter back in, two, whenever he wrote it, it was read aloud in 2005. And it was originally Tyrion 2, not Tyrion 3, so the story expanded. Now here is that version of this quote. Illyrio says he wants to give young Griff his blessings and has a gift for him in the chests. Halden tells him there is no time for the litter. Illyrio gets angry and says there are things Griff must know. The Golden Company has broken its contact with Mir and is riding west from the disputed lands. Halden interrupts him by saying they already know this because Benero has seen it in his fires and that the Golden Company makes for Volantis. That is why Griff needs them to make haste, Illyrio says. The dragon has three heads. There is no need for haste. Halden says Griff believes there is need for haste. Halden eyes Tyrion and then begins to speak in another language. Tyrion cannot tell what it is, but thinks it might be Volantine. He catches a few words that come close to High Valyrian. The words he catches are queen, dragon, and sword. So that was changed. That was changed, taken away. It was removed, that reference to the sword in particular. I remember this at the time. It was a big point of theorizing. The boards on westrust.org really honed in on that mention of a sword and the overwhelmingly popular choice was that it was Blackfire. They're talking about giving Blackfire the sword to Aegon to really seal his identity, to really show Westeros that he is who he says he is, while also very much suggesting to the clever and on in-tune reader that he's actually a Blackfire and not a Targaryen. Of course, yes, Targaryen Blackfires are Targaryens in their own way, but still, you get what I mean. 
So that's pretty cool. I guess that the follow-up theory, which I also agree with and was an early adopter of myself, was that George decided that was too obvious. It would be caught. I mean, we caught it when it wasn't even in a published chapter, (laughs) assuming that we were right. Because that was an accounting of the reading, not the word-for-word text that George read. So, very strong evidence there as well. I really like how Tyrion answers Griff's question about being useful. It's a reminder that he's sober and, and has this clarity here. Connington is hateful towards Lannisters. So he has a lot of, uh, well, he just has a lot of hatred, period. But he really doesn't like Lannisters. Well, his first take is fair. He says, why would the queen want a Lannister when a Lannister killed her father? It's a reasonable get question. But Tyrion, like I said, he's really good. He gives a really good answer here. And it's hard to argue with. Quote. I can tell her, Grace, how my sweet sister thinks if you call it thinking. <laughs> I can tell her captains the best way to defeat my brother Jamie in battle. I know which lords are brave and which are craven, which are loyal and which are venal. I can deliver allies to her. And I know much and more of dragons, as your half-maester will tell you. I'm amusing too, and I don't eat much. Consider me your own true imp. Griff's response to this is similar to Ned Stark's when pressed on the issue of keeping the direwolves. He never actually says, okay, fine, you can keep the wolves or anything like that. He just immediately launches into the rules, uh, the conditions under which they're to be kept. That's what happens here. And it's also similar to like Jon Snow telling Ned that the god sent the wolves. He's like, can't really argue with that. Connington has to admit those are darn good reasons for Danny to make good use of him. He's like, okay, dragon knowledge, knowledge of lords and, and who's brave and which, who's craven. All right, that is actually quite useful. But Connington never says, okay. He just says, all right. You get to sleep there. You're the least important member of the company. (laughs) But it's a yes. It is a yes. It's a mean, rude yes, but it is a yes. The same thing happens in Duncan Egg, too. When Sir Duncan confronts Egg's father, Makar, about how it would be better for Egg to be out roughing it, to have a little struggle in his life versus being pampered, like most royals are, Makar just grinds his jaw like Stannis and stomps off. But the next morning, Egg shows up saddled, ready to go out roughing it. So it was a it was a acceptance, a begrudging yes without ever verbalizing the yes. The one thing Tyrion very slightly bonds with John Connington for a half a second comes right here. Quote, I understand hate well enough. From the way Griff said the word, Tyrion knew that much was true. He has, suff- he has supped on hate himself this one. It has warmed him in the night for years. A bad sign for a motivator, isn't it? Hate that's held on to for that long time, well, what does that do? It makes you bitter. So let's talk about bitterness and John Connington. One thing I can't quite figure out is the symbolism of the red wolfskin pelt he wears. Maybe because he's restless. Wolves are described as restless a lot of times, but I'm not really sure. Weigh in. If you've got a symbolic take on that, let me know. Much is the same Griff he chose, all to obviously emphasize that he's John Connington. He didn't really try that hard with his disguise, in other words. I mean, Griff, Lord of Griffin's Roost, it's not that sneaky. <laughs> his historical parallel here is very straightforward. I've said it before. If you've never thought about it or heard me talk about it, 
Once you hear it, I think you'll agree. It's Bitter Steel, a.k.a. Agor Rivers, one of the great bastards of Aegon IV, half-brother to Damon Blackfire, husband to Damon's eldest daughter, Calla. We have a full episode devoted to him. I think it's the fifth one in our Blackfire series. Might be the fourth. The Golden Company episode might be the fifth. We have separate ones on the Golden Company and on Bitter Steel. Like Connington, he was, Bittersteel was, a very serious man. The nickname was not incidental. It was very well earned. Bittersteel was stinted compared to his great bastard half-brothers. For example, they both got Valyrian steel through their family. He did not. Like, that's not fair, right? <laughs> Bittersteel fled in exile after being on the losing side of a key battle. The first Blackfire Rebellion, the Redgrass Field. Connington was exiled by Ares after losing the Battle of the Bells. Bittersteel was the top guardian for the surviving Blackfire heirs until his own death. That's pretty much the same here for John Connington, except it's just the one kid, and Connington doesn't know he's Blackfire, but still pretty similar. Bittersteel formed the Golden Company and invaded Westeros with them and a Blackfire claimant twice. And here comes John Connington, ready to bring them over to Westeros for a Blackfire pretender. <laughs> Yet again. The span of exile for them is similarly long too. It was just under, it's, it's going to be just under 20 years for Connington and just over 20 for Bittersteel, maybe 22, 23. Oh, and who had a key hand in foiling both the third and fourth Blackfire rebellions? Aegon Targaryen, Egg, who was cited as a major factor in the third as a prince at that point, of course, as a warrior and, and presumably a leader of sorts. And Duncan the Tall himself slew the Blackfire pretender Daemon the third in the fourth Blackfire Rebellion. So the parallels are like parallel to each other here. This is just a parallel party. We expect that Bittersteel is planned to appear in a future Duncan Egg story too, given those events. I mean, the third Blackfire Rebellion takes place seven years after the latest Duncan Egg book, Mystery Night. So there's always a chance before that too. It doesn't, we don't have to go all the way seven years there uh, to see that potential appearance of Bittersteel. And if we do actually see Bittersteel on page, I expect we'll notice a few more things he has in common with Connington. So Tyrion figures it out, though. Like we said, this Griff nickname, he's not really, his hair, is, his roots are showing. He's not really hiding it that much because most people just aren't even going to know who he is. Like, he's been in exile so long, he's been forgotten. But Tyrion is far more knowledgeable and aware of such things. And he lets him know that he knows in this quote here. What if we should find the queen and discover that this talk of dragons was just some sailor's drunken fancy? This wide world is full of such mad tales. Grumpkins and snarks, ghosts and ghouls, mermaids, rock goblins, winged horses, winged pigs, winged lions. The winged lion, of course, that's him saying, I know who you are, because that's a griffin. But this is also similar to Tyrion's skepticism at the wall. In both cases, we know he's wrong. We saw the others when Tyrion's being skeptical, and we've certainly seen the dragons. But this is also a, a subtle reference to Bittersteel yet again. Winged horse, he says. Rock goblins, winged horses, winged pigs, winged lions. Winged horse is Bittersteel's sigil with, with fire-breathing winged horse. And I cannot think of another winged horse in the series. There might be one, but I just can't think of one. So that's pretty straightforward. By the way, Winged Pig is also a sigil. It's Clayton Suggs's sigil of all people. He's one of the Queen's men, understand us. He's, he's terrible. Also, he's named after a football player. You know, well, when pigs fly. Yeah. <laughs> so we will have more chances to make this comparison of Bittersteel to Connington when we're actually in Connington's head 
And certainly we'll see a lot more of his anger and bitterness from that perspective. But we'll also see some other things. He's going to, in fact, take a look directly in Bittersteel's golden eyes and not realize how much of a mirror it is. Tyrion's own read is strong and negative on Connington. He, he does not have a good feeling about this guy, and neither do I. And it's his eyes that really tell the story. They were ice blue, pale, cold. The dwarf misliked pale eyes. Lord Tywin's eyes had been pale green and flecked with gold. And that didn't work out either. I mean, yeah, Tywin and, and Tywin and Connington have some things in common with their harshness, their ruthlessness. Uh, certainly Connington is nowhere near as bad as Tywin. But I also think that's in a bit of an allusion to the others. I mean, ice blue, pale, cold. If you were to hear that sentence in a vacuum and think A Song of Ice and Fire, I think that's the first thing you would think of is the others. And of course, there's no straightforward connection of John Connington to the others. So what I think maybe if, if that's the suggestion here is it's symbolic of him doing the others work for them and bringing civil war and disease to Westeros, which should make it a lot weaker. Um, all that death and destruction could make the long night worse. Tyrion, of course, doesn't notice that. He's more focused on this connection to his father, nor could he possibly take note of the fact that John Connington is gay. There's no clues to his sexuality in this chapter. We get them in his head, not outside of them so much. We find out he's quite in love with Rhaegar when we get in his POV. He thinks of him as his silver prince. That's not a, <laughs> that's not a casual uh, affection there. I note it here because it's crucial as his motivation. Uh, one that Varys and Illyrio are very much leveraging and counting on. Connington, his love for Rhaegar, that lost love, that unrequited, unfulfilled love, is causing him to be very determined in doing well by that man's son. He really wants Rhaegar's son to get the throne back, you know, in memory of this man he loved. Daenerys questioned the bones, the sheep bones, the, the child's bones that she thought maybe those are sheep bones. Uh, ultimately, she decided she was not being deceived. And I think she's correct in that estimation. Jon Snow had no reason to question the idea that Mance isn't really Mance. Uh, in that chapter coming up. And here, well, Gonington could have a reason to suspect Varys and Illyrio are presenting him with a false Rhaegar's son, but it's one of these things that he really wants to believe, and maybe it never crossed his mind. Maybe he just didn't think, are they deceiving me? It may not have crossed his mind, but he doesn't want to think about that, even if uh, someone brings it up. So it'll be an interesting point of conflict for him if somehow proof emerges that that's not Rhaegar's kid or... Man, what will he do if that happens, if he discovers the truth of that? And this is, of course, goes back to things Illyrio was saying about Tyrion and why he's not just a common sellsword, why you can actually trust him. Well, maybe you can't actually trust him, but you can trust this aspect of him. You can trust that he really does legitimately care about Rhaegar's legacy and Rhaegar's son, at least this person he thinks is Rhaegar's son. So at the time, Illyrio said, Young Griff is someone he dotes on, which is, yeah, he calls him his son like that. You know, it's his very affectionate. And here's where we get to the evidence that Illyrio is the father of Young Griff and not Rhaegar. <laughs> there is a gift for the boy in one of the chests, some candied ginger. He was always fond of it. Illyrio sounded oddly sad. I thought I might continue on to Goy and draw with you. A farewell feast before you start downriver. We have no time for feasts, my lord, said Halden. 
So very striking. Uh, Nina and Joe both wrote takes on this, and so did I. So let's go through these. They all seem to, they all catch the same sort of odd affection for Aegon. The, he's as tall as Griff now, which means he hasn't seen him in a while. That's, that's a report. He's very interested in the kid. It makes sense that he would be interested in their, in their prints, their manufactured prints. But this is personal. It's not just how's his swordsmanship, how's his education, how's his, like, is he tough? Is he, right? Like, those are the things you would ask about a, your manufactured king but these are more personal questions. He's like, he brings him candy and says he, he really liked this candy. His shoulders slump. This is the, the, the note that he's oddly sad. It's nostalgic, right? Yeah, of course, this kid lived with him. So maybe he just got attached to him. But really, with the eye color being blue, Sarah's eyes being blue, Illyrio's got that look from the statue. It really looks like that his genetics were the reason. He had the right look to manufacture a Blackfire-looking kid, a Targaryen-slash-Blackfire-looking kid. But again, it's just not quite enough. <laughs> These, as amazing as this facsimile is, it still comes up short. Joe notes a similar thing. He says, how fair is our lad? And the quote that Ashea just read, over and over, we're told this guy would sell his mother if the price was right. So this is really out of character for him, this sensitivity, this personal interest in a human being. Right, like this compassion, this these connections. It's not. It's very different than the very cold calculating. Like, what kind of money can I get out of this? What kind of value can I get out of a guy who's deep in slavery and land owning and all these just awful, corrupt businesses he's in? And for me, Aziz, it's like the bar is so low for Illyrio. Yeah, that just this little thing changes my opinion of him so much. Yeah. <laughs> he's so bad that it's like, no, he can't really be sensitive. I was like, something else is going on here. And yeah, but I do, I, I agree with you. I think it is sincere. I think he really does care about this kid, which means that it has to be something like a family connection because there's no way a dude this crappy would form this kind of sensitivity to a kid that he doesn't have a connection to. So I think it's uh, extremely well done by George that this book had been out for a while years before this started to be really accepted. People started noticing it right away. But there was a lot of resistance to a lot of this. And, but now I think we're in a different spot where it's been 10 years and people are like, yeah, yeah, we've been sitting on it for a while, had time to think about it. It just more and more little clues have popped up that people didn't notice initially. And it just, and, and so little counter evidence, like there's just nothing pointing to this kid, in my opinion, legitimately being Rhaegar's son. There's just almost no evidence for that. And so much on the other side. Nina writes, this is the first mention of Kalpono in a very long time. We do know that character. Kalpono was one of Drogo's co's. He was the first one to leave when Drogo was laid dying. Took 10,000 with him. But here we hear he has 30,000. And apparently, we also hear he's intimidating other Kalasars. This Zeko and Mafo are running from him, apparently. So... We wonder if that's going to matter. Pono isn't mentioned again in this book. Uh, he might be mentioned later. Certainly we see Jocko, who is the, one of the ones that Danny has a problem with and meets him at the end of the book. So we might yet see Pono next book, but no more on him this book. But it's important to, to keep track of the Dithraki. They're obviously going to be really important. Daenerys is quite likely going to win them over and if she brings them with her 
to Westeros, as we saw on TV, which seems pretty damn likely. It's another example of culture clash that, you know, the Thraki aren't necessarily going to get along with Westerosi or communicate with them even. Yeah, so that could cause some issues. Uh, and this is potentially related to the, the slave trade ripples, Joe writes. Like the Dothraki may be more active because the price of slaves is going up because of so many have been freed. So that is uh, one of those sad but realistic effects on the market, on the slave market that Illyrio was alluding to with Tyrion. And Tyrion was getting very curious about all that. And was like, why is Illyrio helping this person who's destroying the slave trade when he is clearly profiting from the slave trade. So this stuff really wraps into itself. It's super interesting. And I'm, I'm curious where a lot of these global political machinations are going to go. There's so many really big, powerful figures and how Danny's going to interact with Pentos and the calls and Illyrio and all these other things, the, the Volantines. It's super interesting. I can't wait. We're going to discuss Septula more later because she's barely in this chapter except I'll at least point out that she's perhaps the most mysterious. She's the, the member of this group that I have the least, the, the fewest theories on. So I'm, that makes her very curious. It makes me more curious. The letter, less we know, the more we want to know. Halden also is a major curiosity, but I don't know that he has any kind of secret identity or anything that I know of. He doesn't seem like that. He, he reminds us vaguely of Kyburn because he's an ex, he's a guy that was apparently kicked out of the Citadel. But it doesn't sound like he was kicked out for being like a, a sadistic necromancer or something. He seems intelligent, though. Maybe not as intelligent as he thinks he is. He comes off as a little bit arrogant. Maybe that was his problem. Maybe he's just too much of a know-it-all. Maybe he just couldn't get along with other people. That would be kind of fitting that these characters, a lot of these Blackfires, these characters in this party are just along the same lines. They're just, all of them are kind of poor copies of the originals. <laughs> like this guy is a half maester and <laughs> et cetera. A little more on that in a minute. He definitely has some capabilities, though. I mean, he's seen he's his education of Aegon. He's a he's a full education. He's a broad curriculum. It seems like he certainly seems to know, have a, uh, earned a silver link. He didn't get enough links to be a maester, but apparently, he saying he didn't get enough links to be a maester means he got some links. And I would guess silver being one of them, since he introduces himself as a healer. He seems to know about grayscale. So Nina thinks he's in exile from the Citadel too maybe some sort of reason he had to leave. None of us have great takes on why he had to leave. There's just no information there. In terms of the poor copy theme that's going on here, Nina suggests maybe he's like a the version of Marwyn. <laughs> For where Danny gets Marwyn, who's like really well, <laughs> knows all the stuff about dragon lore and prophecies. And well, Aegon just gets hauled in Halfmaster. Who knows a few things, but he doesn't know. He hasn't been to Ashai and found pages of, lost books and done all this other stuff and used glass candles. So yeah, Halden could be like the poor man's morrow. And I like that idea. He tries to regain the upper hand over Tyrion uh, in their little battle of knowledge. It's like a, like two men butting heads over who's, who's the better know-it-all. And Halden starts telling stories and it intimidates him a little bit. The first ones don't do anything. He's like Pirates of Dagger Lake and Korra the Cruel. And Tyrion's like, ha ha, that's funny. But then the Shrouded Lord, that one does spook Tyrion a little bit. Quote, I beg your pardon, Yolo. You need not look so pale. I was only playing with you. The Prince of Sorrows does not bestow his gray kiss lightly. His gray kiss. The thought made his flesh crawl. 
death had lost its terror for Tyrion Lannister, but Grayscale was another matter. The Shrouded Lord is just a legend, he told himself, no more real than the ghost of Lan the Clever that some claim haunts Casterly Rock. Even so, he held his tongue. Here we have an old friend, foe shadowing. You haven't had that in a while, have we? If you haven't been listening to VRR since the start, you might not even know what I mean by foe shadowing. It's a term we coined to indicate foreshadowing something that never actually happens. Now you're saying, perhaps, but Aziz, the grayscale stuff absolutely happens. Yeah, of course it does. I think it's going to be a pretty big plot line. And there's a small chance Tyrion even has it inside him. I am a little dubious of that, in part because of other foreshadowing that seems to indicate he's going to live through everything. I, I'm, my headcanon is Tyrion survives the whole, the whole series and writes about it afterwards. But that's another topic. Regardless, we can agree that Grayscale is a thing, whether or not it's directly a part of Tyrion's story or just goes elsewhere. The Shrouded Lord, though, does not happen, despite a lot of setup here. We have confidence that this is foreshadowing because George flat out said that he wrote a ch Shrouded Lord chapter. Tyrion meets the Shrouded Lord, talks to them, and he was really proud of that chapter, which makes it a bummer that he cut it <laughs> because he said it was a great chapter. He was really proud of how he wrote it, but it just didn't fit anymore. It just didn't fit the story the way he wrote it. And Well, maybe we'll get it as bonus material sometime down the line. I doubt he deleted it, right? <laughs> so one day it'll be like bonus, like DVD extras, uh, deleted scenes, right? <laughs> So I think we'll still get it one day. Duck. Raleigh Duckfield, it's very interesting story. Not interesting in that it, the, the details are particularly provocative, but he's the one guy that is not shy about telling his story. Everyone else is like keeping their history secret. They have their secrets, but Duck is like, I'll just tell you everything. And it's kind of satisfying. Like we all... Kind of like John and Janos Slint. We all kind of, we don't want to revel in violence, right? But when it happens to the worst people, we kind of like shrug a little or maybe we even feel some satisfaction and maybe we feel a little bit uncomfortable with feeling satisfied at, at violence. But hey, we're human. And we do like seeing terrible people get punishment because we're just so used to seeing powerful, terrible people escape punishment. So we really are often starved for that form of justice. Rich, snobby, upper-class people getting away with things. And that is the story of Duck. Giving it back to someone who held over him. Now, Duck still suffered the consequences. He still had to go into exile. So he didn't, it, it wasn't a full tale of justice. It was just that dude got his ribs broken and uh, Duck had to run off. So we actually do meet, uh, Nina points out, we actually do meet that Lord Caswell. He was just the heir when Duck ran off. And we point out, we see him at Bitterbridge uh, in A Clash of Kings when Catelyn sees him during the melee that Brienne won. Uh, why Harry Strickland believed Duck to be the best candidate to become young Griff's master at arms is kind of odd. Yeah, why? I mean, he was, there's no particular connection there that we know of. So it is a little strange, but uh, maybe more on that later. Again, we have a parallel to Dunk in the Tall. Quite clearly, we talked about Dunk, Duck, so it's somewhat straightforward. Humble background, being large, serving a Targaryen, joining the Kingsguard. But again, we get this poor copy theme. Duck is no Dunk. Duck's pretty cool. I got nothing against the guy. I like him. 
he's funny. He's loyal to this young kid, which is, I think, a virtue. But Duncan Natal is a legend. I mean, this guy stood up to the Targaryens. He stood up to Arian. He fought a trial by combat. I mean, that, that's the equivalent. This trial by combat is like the equivalent of Duck, like taking a hammer to Lauren Caswell. <laughs> so just, again, like it was with Halden and Marwyn, I'm not insulting or criticizing Duck. I'm just saying he doesn't stack up to Duncan. And this whole cast of characters it's pretty similar in that regard. Every one of the guys they they compare to, they just don't. They're just not quite enough. Even Connington isn't. He's no Bittersteel. Bittersteel was a lot. He or I mean, he, Bittersteel put together the Gold Company. What has Connington done in that, in that regard? Bittersteel was a notable warrior. Connington's a good warrior, but I don't know if he's on on Bittersteel's level. So, just a really overpowering theme here. Of yeah, these guys are good but they're not as good as the ones they're copying. They're not as good as the historical parallel example. They're not equal parallels. They're not uh, on that level. Um, it's really, really overpowering here. So Tree Girl from Flick noticed a similar thing. She wrote it. She expanded on it a bit. It's, it's, it's added on. You got, in addition to Griff being of less than bitter steel and young Griff being less than egg or what Rhaegar's son could have been or as a... Reminder to the, the tale of Urax and Sirwin, a poor reflection of a dragon. Halden's a half-maester, and hey, added on to all that, Tyrion is called the half-man. He isn't really a half-man, but hey, it's kind of fits thematically. So that's pretty cool. More uh, world-building around the Rhine here. It's pretty subtle. They're just going up and down the Rhine. More of that comes out later as they get more involved with the scenery but it starts a little bit more here. Uh, he notices some fountains. He, he thinks about how this used to be a really nice place until the dragons came. I said this last time, but it's come up again. So check out our Nymeria episodes for our most detailed and thorough takes on the Roin and what happened around that time. Also, Tyrion himself is becoming is a historical parallel here to Lomas Longstrider. Now, this might be a different example because I'm not sure... I want to call Tyrion a poor copy of Lomas, but maybe he is because Lomas had a defined goal. Lomas went out into the world with the specific purpose of going to all the man-made and naturally made wonders and documenting it. So Tyrion is sort of following in his footsteps by going to so many of the same places. And that's part of why I think he's going to survive to write these stories. But he's going to have gone, here's a list. Nina has a partial list here. First of all, here's what we know. Nine wonders made by man, seven natural wonders, six, six or seven, depending on how you read the assessment of the walls of Karth. And now there's confirmed ones, the Valyrian Roads, the Wall, Titan of Bravos, Triple Bells of Norvos, Long Bridge of Volantis, Pals with a Thousand Rooms, and again, possibly the Triple Walls of Karth. We only know one of the natural wonders, the Caves of Norvos. Uh, other candidates for the unnatural wonders would be the High Tower, the Five Forts, and unnatural wonder or natural wonders. Other candidates would be the Rhine, the Bone Mountains, maybe Casterly Rock, and Great the Great Sand Sea. Casterly Rock could be like one of those combo ones, like the Walls of Carth, maybe. So Tyrion's gonna end up going to a lot of these places, not necessarily all of those, but he's seen some of these already, and uh, is gonna probably see some of the ones maybe even Lomas didn't mention, or or maybe even encounter a few that. 
are on that level that weren't cited as Lomas uh, by that point. So on one hand, you can see how he's a poor cop because he's going to these places without that same intent and without documenting it and, and all that. But still, I like that. It's pretty cool. Also, another uh, kind of chilling parallel to Bran. And as a hint to what Tyrion's role is going to be going forward and maybe the type of advice he gives Daenerys, the kind of things we were worried about. Well, here's a quote. No matter, Griff, you are no knight, and I'm Hugo Hill, a little monster. Your little monster, if you like. Mmm, right? That's right cool. Lady Gaga. <laughs> Your little monster. Your monster. Tyrion is cold hands. And that's somewhat fitting, too, because of the, uh, the Dornishman's Wife's song, which isn't in this chapter, but it is in John 3, which is, you know, two chapters from now. And, of course, that song pops up all over the place with great symbolic meaning. Liet Rubenfeld asked, do you think the Targaryens may have books prophesizing Phagon, which is why Baylor locked his sisters in a tower and Bloodraven and Egg were so obsessed about the Blackfires? Well, that's a really interesting idea. I, that's entirely possible. I mean, if they can dream of the future, they can dream of dragons, why not dream of these false dragons or these attempts to usurp their dynasty? That's an interesting idea. I like that a lot. I've never heard that. I, that's pretty cool. I'm going to, Need to marinate on that some more. Great take. Rolling Knight noticed a bit of a parallel, three parallels in description here. We have the statue. This, this, this is uh, in reference to Illyrio's being uh, Young Griff's dad and uh, Blackfire in general. Lithe and handsome is how the statue is described. Then when we meet Young Griff, he is a lithe and well-made youth. And in the Mystery Knight... A young man, lean and lithe, is the description of John the Fiddler, a.k.a. Damon the Second Blackfire. Hmm. Very interesting. Yes, common takes amongst their description, a very specific use of the word lithe. Lithe is used out there a few other places to describe people. It's not super unique as a description, but it's definitely not common. Other examples of characters that have that description are Renly and Asha and Satin. Violent Messiah 666 says, if he gets Darkstar with Don on his Kingsguard, it fits with the poor reflection of Sir Arthur. Thoughts? Nailed it. Yes, absolutely. I've, I've said this before. I think that it would fit beautifully with this theme of poor copies to have Darkstar in place of Arthur Dane. You got Rhaegar's son instead of Rhaegar. You got Arthur Dane with Rhaegar. So trying to look like Rhaegar's son, why not also have a Dane on your Kingsguard wielding the same sword? Yes, but of course, personality-wise, and probably swordsmanship as well, Gerald Dane, poor copy of Arthur Dane, right? That's a straightforward one. So good catch there, Violent Messiah 666. I 100% agree. Stefan B says, why were Sir Raleigh and Duck headed up to meet with Illyrio in the first place? Well, uh, news is one thing. They were exchanging news, but Tyrion might have been part of it. Um, he, Illyria may have thought it was that important to give them Tyrion, but also the sword. Uh, and whatever was in that letter, Tyrion didn't get to read it. Griff burned it. And he wanted to read it, but there may have been more information in there that was useful. But definitely there was information about Tyrion in the letter, but probably other stuff too. Stephanie, the peerless wonders, why is Halden so rude to Tyrion? Possibly it relates to just wanting to be the smartest guy in the room. That's a thing that a lot of smart people do. They uh, smart people with uh, low self-esteem or just an, a bad attitude don't like it when someone else around seems to be as knowledgeable as they are. I feel like 
Halden would also have a little bit of extra negativity towards Tyrion for his privilege. Like, obviously, Tyrion has his own issues, but, like, he was, you know... Yeah. Top of society. That's a good point. Also, and just, we can all, we always have to throw in that people just tend to look down on him because he's a dwarf. I mean, that's true. There's prejudice, too. That is extremely common throughout Tyrion's arc. People just are rude to him because of what he looks like. Uh, so that's that's there too. It's it's always hard to judge because Shea is totally right. People judge him for his extreme privilege, but they also judge him for his appearance. And those are opposite sides of, those are opposite reactions, right? Well, not opposite, but they're, it, it's hard to tell one from the other, which is driving that. And because it's often both. And we come back to as well, the 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 theme of pieces not behaving the way they want, that the, 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 the players want. Varus and Illyrio have had a lot of pieces do things they did not predict or expect or comprehend. It's a dichotomy of expectations. On one hand, yeah, they can count on Griff to protect and truly care about this kid because he believes it's Rhaegar's son and he was in love with Rhaegar, all that. That loyalty can be depended on. That doesn't mean he's going to obey their orders or their suggestions, though. What he thinks is right for this kid isn't necessarily always going to be what they think because they all have different goals here. Although maybe it's more similar than I'm saying. I mean, if they all are, if Varus's thing is personal, if Illyrio's thing is personal, well, hey, Griff's thing is personal too. He wants, it's, it's all about his relationship. So maybe I'm exaggerating that point a little bit. But still, the main point is Varus and Illyrio can't control this guy, even though they fully understand his motivations. And that part is not in doubt. Interesting too, the Tyrion is still claiming to kill Joffrey. It adds to his reputation a little bit. We know he didn't do it. Uh, but... It's official. It's an official story. He lost his trial by combat. So the world thinks that he's guilty. He may as well lean into that. They believe he did it. In this company, it might actually be a benefit. So, hey, do it. On Facebook, poster Shannon Ruth pointed out this take of Cora the Cruel. And it's not meant to be a theory that we have a lot of evidence for. But the suggestion that somewhere out there is Taisha. We always love thinking Taisha could be this character or this character. It would be oddly fitting for someone who has gone through such horrible things to turn that around on people. Now, that's not a healthy <laughs> way to respond to that, but it would, wouldn't be out of uh, the realm of possibility by any means to be the person who goes around cutting off members. But hmm, I'm guessing we'll never hear from Cora the Cruel again. Still, I like the idea. Davos won! The gang goes to the sisters, aka webbed fingers and red herrings. A fairly unique chapter in that it is one of the more capable of standing alone as a story by itself. It's also one that showcases some of George's influences couched in the usual manner. World building. His world building influences are many and varied and deep and interesting. We love to pay attention to that. This one features a lot of subtle background elements that we've been pointing to whenever they appear, and this time they're not subtle. I mean, actual web fingers and apparently toes too. Hello, squishers. Hello, deep ones. All that fun stuff. The Lovecraft influence on this chapter is substantial. If you've read the story The Shadow over Innsmouth, well, you may have noticed the crossover already. I won't spoil it, but parallels are pretty strong. The first line of this story, though, or this chapter, rather, is a nod to a different author altogether, not Lovecraft. It references the central theme of this chapter, storms. Lightning split the northern sky, etching the black tower of the night lamp against the blue-white sky. Archmaester Rennie reminds us that Jack Vance, a favorite of George's, there is a house, Vance, 
wrote a novel called The Night Lamp. So there you go. <laughs> so this isn't a long chapter. It's actually one of the shorter ones, but there's a lot of rabbit holes as well as this standout setting. The overwhelming darkness of this chapter is just so well done. I don't mean metaphorical darkness, but I do mean that too. I mean like literal darkness. It's dark. But also this concept of the great night lamp, it's so cool. It's the inversion of a lighthouse. It's instead of your last hope, it's actually the thing leading you to your death. It's actually worse. So when he meets Lord Borel, George shows the dark and how the light within the darkness and how the light is actually the darkness. Quote. They found the Lord alone in the gloom of his hall, making a supper of beer and bread and sister stew. Twenty iron sconces were mounted along his thick stone walls, but only four held torches, and none of them was lit. Two fat tallow candles gave a meager, flickering light. Davos could hear the rain lashing at the walls and a steady dripping where the roof had sprung a leak. The suggestion that this place is the only light in the darkness is just, I can't get over that. It's so creepy. This place is a refuge. This place? Nina writes, a poor, rundown, cold, lonely port town full of strange and unseemly characters. So having Godric sporting a possible vestige of the Deep One's heritage fits perfectly in the setting. Yeah. And there's this quote. Sisterton is hell enough. Davos feared the worst. The three sisters were fickle bitches loyal only to themselves. Suggestion not made openly in the text, but perhaps implied is that the ominous storming outside is actually a good thing. We don't feel that. Davos doesn't feel that. But if you put yourself in Lord Borrell's place, it is. Davos's life is in Lord Borrell's hands and a storm is a bad omen. It's a literary device really common to indicate such. As well as one of the worst things there is to a sailor like Davos. So, Personally to him, it's ominous. For readers, we're used to storms meaning ominous things. But the guy sitting there dictating what's going to happen, the guy in charge, the storm puts him in a good mood. He likes the storms. So that's a real interesting piece of perspective that's hard to wrap your mind around, but it's a really clever aspect of this chapter. He thinks of some of the worst winds he's ever felt, Davos does, because he's, you know, that's what it puts him in the mood for. He thinks that those worst winds were when he, after the burning of Alistair Florent, when those winds supposedly drove them north to Eastwatch. And by the way, Alistair Florent arguably has king's blood, but arguably doesn't, because Florence haven't been kings for so long. Davos thinks... Davos had misliked that wind. It had seemed to him to smell of burning flesh and the sound of it was anguish as it played amongst the lines. So, whoa. I mean, maybe that's just his subconscious, his, his guilt or something, or just the haunting being of the memory of a man being burned in front of him. But, yeah. Like I said, though, storms are a bad thing for just about everyone. But, again, matter of perspective, George is so good Flipping perspective and showing us these kind of things. And well, what's one man's famine is another man's feast. Almost literally here. Quote. Storms, Lord Godric said, the word as fondly as another man might say his lover's name. Storms were sacred on the sisters before the Andals came. Our gods of old were the lady of the waves and the lord of the skies. 
They made storms every time they made it. He leaned forward. These kings never bother with the sisters. Why should they? We are small and poor. And yet, you're here, delivered to me by the storms. This is extremely unusual. I mean, most real world cultures saw storms as anger of the gods or that there was a storm god and he was doing his thing or she. Or they have a temper. They're not terribly trustworthy because they're temperamental and you just never know when they're going to come upon, you know, get, get angry and thunder and lightning and rain comes suddenly. There's exceptions, of course. I mean, any culture that lives in a really dry place is going to be happy with just about any kind of rain, but they still may have a storm god. And very often these storm gods and goddesses are described as temperamental. And Davos spends a good portion of the chapter thinking of how much damage they've done to Sala's fleet and thus to Stannis. These storms are just, he keeps thinking of all the problems these storms have caused. Nina writes, the old gods the Borals once worshipped, not the old gods, but these older gods, the Lady of the Waves and the Lord of the Skies, are reminiscent of the story of Durin, God's grief, whose bride, Eleni, was daughter of the sea god and the goddess of the wind. And obviously, they sent storms against Durin's successive castles to show their rage at this uh, marriage between a goddess and a person. And well, that's where the name Storm's End comes from. The ancient sister men were so poor that shipwrecks were arguably a necessity for their survival. They almost needed these shipwrecks to get by, which is why they look on storms as such a positive thing. I suspect the wood situation is not great on the sisters. It would explain why they aren't a big naval culture despite being islanders. Now they So you would say there's not a lot of wood on the sisters? <laughs> nice. They do have pirate kings in their history, but the Starks shut that down. Maybe they were more of a naval power and that's just a thing of the past and they haven't been able to regain that. But it doesn't sound like they were ever a big seafaring culture even when they were peaking in that department. So storm worship really does fit given all these circumstances, but it's an unusual set of circumstances. Uh, these set of, uh, of conditions are not likely to occur elsewhere and as far as we know, haven't. Even the distant and feared and near universally despised Iron Men hate storms to the point that their uh, monotheistic religion has a, the good guy is the waves and the bad guy is the storms. Yeah. And Davos wonders whether the storms that hit Salador's fleet were the vengeance of an angry god in sort of in revenge for the cheating of creating a wind to get north through Melisandre. While the fact that there's a storm raging in this chapter makes Davos and the reader both uncomfortable, again, keep in mind, Lord Godric is sitting here kind of feeling pretty good about it. <laughs> it's a really a grand matter of perspective. And again, the slow-eyed maid is, an, is one of the reasons why he's in a good mood too. He mentions that he just got a new windfall from a shipwreck recently. It sounds like really good stuff, and it sounds like Lord Borald did it on purpose. And here's the description of the kind of things that they do. Lord Godric's forebears had been pirate kings until the Starks came down on them with fire and sword. These days, the sistermen left open piracy to Salador San and his ilk and confined themselves to wrecking. The beacons that burned along the shores of the three sisters were supposed to warn of shoals and reefs and rocks and lead the way to safety. But on stormy nights and foggy ones, some sistermen would use false lights to draw unwary captains to their doom. 
this perspective will shift dramatically in the next chapter because Davos is going to talk to a man who mentions the slow-eyed maid. He met one of the crew members. And Davos is already aware what the implication here when he says the slow-eyed maid. He, he understands that this loot came off a shipwreck because where else would it come from? But he didn't know that he was going to immediately meet someone who had met a member of the slow-eyed maid's crew. And he thinks how cruel are the gods to send a ship all the way to the Jade Gates and all the way back only to be destroyed right at the end of their, their voyage. But again, perspective. We don't agree with it. I'm with Davos. Like, that is cruel. But Lord Boral is thanking the gods for this. And that brings us to White Harbor. More to say on it when we get there, but there's a lot of history about White Harbor in this chapter. A lot of Northern history as applied to the sisters and the back and forth. Now, we won't get too deep into that because we have two full episodes on House Manderley. So I direct you there. We talk about the sisters, the rape of the three sisters after that, those generations of piracy. That's what the Starks did to shut them down. Uh, it involved flaying and entrails and all sorts of things that sound somewhat similar to how they would sacrifice people to their heart trees. The storyline continues in White Harbor. And, and for example, well, here's one of the quotes. I have no love for Northmen, he announced. The maesters say the rape of the three sisters was 2,000 years ago, but Sisterton has not forgotten. We were a free people before that, with our kings ruling over us. Afterward, we had to bend our knee to the Eyrie to get the Northmen out. The wolf and the falcon fought over us for a thousand years, till, between the two of them, they had gnawed all the fat and flesh off the bones of these poor islands. Some bitterness, and it sounds somewhat justified. Not enough to feel sorry for this particular man, but perhaps feel sorry for some of his people, maybe. Interesting, too, that even on the sisters, despite these differences in hatred for these other cultures that caused them so much harm, they adhere to the ancient laws of hospitality here, too. So that's pretty interesting. Like, Davos feels legitimately comforted by the breaking of bread. And it appears to be correct in feeling that way. In a chapter full of fish, too, we get a red herring story. <laughs> red herring story, of course, means a, well, it's, it's, it's a form of foreshadowing, but it's intentionally so. It's set up that way. It's intended to mislead rather than foreshadowing is something that George kind of changed his mind on. The, the tale of Ned Stark getting a child on a fish wife, of course, is what we're referring to. I like Stefan B's take, one of our flick commenters, that this is a suggestion to the reader that there is a question read Jon Snow's parentage, right? If you read A Game of Thrones for the first time, you may not even pick up on the fact that there's a question about Jon's parentage at all, other than the obvious that he doesn't know who they are or they doesn't know who his mother is and all that. And there's some maybe hidden details, but you're told it's Ned's, that he's Ned Stark's son. And a lot of us on the first read just accepted that. So if you never caught that, well, that's what George is doing here. He's like, look, maybe there is a question as to who, what this whole story is about. So maybe it's just to kind of get them on that train of thought. Now, that's not necessary for, for us here, though. We know that all. So, uh, but the suggestion from Stefan, I, I agree with that. Maybe it's for, maybe it's for the more casual reader to take note of. A bit like this is in Tyrion's chapter. The past casts a shadow on the actions taken here. Thanks to the lesson learned by Lord Godric's father in the case of Eddard Stark's visit there, he has an example to work from. A nice low-risk example. Killing Ned Stark probably wouldn't have changed the course of Robert's rebellion, but it definitely gets Robert's and Winterfell's wrath aimed at you, right? And he couldn't have stood up to that, Godric Borrell's father, I mean. There's a risk. <laughs> That's a big risk. Money isn't worth risking 
your head. Hold on. And unless it's a lot of money, maybe, but it wasn't. So Lord Burrow's father, by letting the man go, well, he's still gambling, but neither side of the coin flip is going to result in you losing your head on the coin flip of letting him go. If you kill him, you're taking the chance that you've picked the wrong side and you're committed. But if you just let the guy go, then you haven't really committed and you haven't earned maybe a great reward, but you also haven't earned yourself a great punishment. And the problem with counting on a reward is, well, if you're counting on a reward from the side that loses, well, then that's obviously not going to happen. So that's why it's a low-risk method. It's the choosing by not choosing that we mentioned before. And of course, well, same thing. The death of Tywin, as we saw at the start of Feast, is doing similar work at the start of Dance. It's just a huge factor. Everywhere we go, Lords are making decisions on who to back based on the fact that Tywin has died. Aegon's invasion uh, with the Golden Company and all that is fast-tracked because of Tywin's death, in, in part because of Tywin's death. Not, that's not the whole reason, obviously, but it's part of it. Here comes a nice little wordplay bit that I really appreciate. Any man can steal a ribbon, the Lord said, but those fingers do not lie. You are the Onion Knight. Well, Lord Burrow's going to have to learn that fingers are not hips. Hips don't lie, but fingers do. As we see in White Harbor, those fingers are definitely going to lie. Some thief is going to be put up there in Davos's place with an onion shoved in his mouth, and everyone's going to think it's Davos, but those fingers lie. <laughs> Good one, George. Good one. I enjoy watching Davos think his way through all this and this problem of, of what this Lord wants. And he starts with thinking of things that Davos would want. He thinks of Stannis. He's like, duty, honor, just now. Nah, that's not what this guy wants. No, this guy does not care about that at all. This guy is looking out for his own neck. And so Davos's argument is really smart. He's like, look, do you really want to be on the losing side? Are you sure Stannis is going to lose? It's a boy king backed by his mom, who's not the most stable genius in the world. <laughs> so, you know? So I, I really like that. It's really well done. It's, it's a good understanding. It's a good writing, good take on the cynicism and bottom line pragmatism that a lot of these lords hold. It's true that we hear this talk of like, the common men don't care who plays, who sits the throne as long as the lords leave them alone when they play their Game of Thrones. That's true for these lesser lords as well. These ones that don't have that much power that if they choose the wrong side, they're screwed just as much as some of these common folk, except that they actually have a choice. That's one of the big differences. The commoners don't have a choice on what side they take. They're like, well, I live on these lands, so I fight for this guy. But still, when the high lords play, everyone suffers. So a fun surprise, too, is just how big a deal uh, it's set up that Wyman Manderley is a failure or a weakling. It's just every single person talks about, oh, he just he can't keep a promise. He's weak-willed. He's just a big fat guy. It's, there's just so many different angles to denigrate this man. So that sets up the North Remembers reveal so well because there's just nothing but criticism and, and shame heaped on this guy that turns out to be pretty solid. Also, great take, great catch by Joe. A lot of people have looked at the tower that Stannis is currently sitting at, the watchtower out near the Crofter's Village that he's got his fire burning. 
as a similar angle to the night lamp here as a false light. He's leading the, the Frey army to, the, to their doom by leading them out onto a lake that's going to collapse under them. And, well, we hear in this chapter that Stannis has been to Sisterton. He's been to Sweet Sister. He's seen the night lamp. So it's kind of cool that maybe he got the idea from the sisters. He specifically told Lord Burl, hey man, if we find out you're using your night lamp to lure ships to their doom, your head's next. So he's been confronted with this exact strategy and now he might be using a, a, a variation of it in the North, which is, that's pretty cool. Davos is found in a seedy smuggler's bar called the Belly of the Whale, which is almost surely a reference to Jonah. Jonah and the Whale, the story of that. Um, you know, Nineveh and all that. Davos was carrying exactly 12 gold dragons, they say, and Jonah is one of the 12 minor prophets in a bunch of versions of Christianity and Judaism. So uh, without getting into all that, he's a, he's a figure that spans most all major religions. <laughs> Not most all, but most major religions. I mean, in Judaism, all of Christianity and some of Islam. So that is, that's a lot of it. <laughs> Definitely not all of it, but quite a lot. And here's another quote. Um, let's talk about the mark for a second. The woman brought them a fresh loaf of bread, still hot from the oven. When Davos saw her hand, he stared. Lord Godric did not fail to make note of it. I, she has the mark like all Burrells for 5,000 years. My daughter's daughter. Okay, so it's creepy, no doubt. But that's not the entire point here. We've covered so much of this. I don't need to rehash this, the deep ones and all that, the mermen and all these different cool undersea races that are very clearly real, but maybe not terribly relevant to the full plotting of A Song of Ice and Fire. They're just an awesome, fun part of the world building. But they do tell us things. They do tell us a little bit about how these bloodlines work, how these magical bloodlines really can linger for a long time. It's like the Targaryen look maintains. Skin changer bonds occasionally reappear or several reappear at once in the case of the Starks. These things just don't go away. Uh, these, it's magical. It doesn't, of course, this is not a real world genetics by any means, but George is showing us the rules of his genetic system by showing these things can linger presumably because of magic, for long periods of time, really long periods of time. Our Werewood episodes, we go into some of that indirectly with talking about houses that seem to have a distinct look. There seems to be a pattern with houses that have a distinct look with heart trees. Obviously, this would not be one of those examples. This house doesn't have a heart tree. They don't have a distinct look necessarily. They have a distinct feature, which is not necessarily the same thing. Maybe that's just semantics. But anyway... Jon Snow, uh, again, I'll bring this up, mentioned it already, but Slint calls Jon, you know, the, he has the mark of the beast because of this thing of uh, being a skin changer. So this concept is out there and it's familiar in its distribution that it uh, lingers since super ancient times and continues to have this potency. Nina writes, from Duck, the honest man in an inverted cause, we now have Davos, the truly honest man in an honest cause. He's not offended by Lord Godric not giving him lordly style or calling him the Onion Knight, but he's deeply offended by being called a turncloak. And he's like, look, call me whatever you want, but I am not that. He's, he really cares about that. He cares about being seen that way, and he's earned it. He will live and die as a king's man in his mind, and that is how he's lived his life. We've seen inside his head, so we know how sincere he is. 
Uh, one of Salador's ships is called the Sathos San, which is most certainly named after his ancestor, a Lysine pirate, who was sent to destroy Corsair strongholds in the Basilisk Isles, but instead took them over and became king of the Basilisk Isles for 30 years. Maybe Salador San here is going to declare himself king of the Stepstones like the rogue prince Daemon Targaryen did. I mean, he won't be like Daemon, but Daemon was king of the Stepstones. Uh, there's also some, some of our commenters were wondering if there's any chance Salador will hook up with Orion Waters, which I don't have any direct thoughts on that other than it's possible. Uh, I don't have any, there's no literary evidence pointing to that, no clues that I know of, but it's certainly out there. Anina also writes, it's funny that Davos' argument is that Salador should stay with Stannis because Tommen will never pay Stannis' debts if he emerges victorious, considering that's exactly what Tycho Nestoris puts on Stannis in exchange for backing. He's like, look, we're going to back you, but part of backing you is that you have to pay Tommen's debts too. And that's why we're coming to you in the first place. So that it's kind of funny how that worked out. It was another one of these ironies. Um, and there's even more Blackfire stuff in this chapter because why not? Why not? They're everywhere. Just one of the many reasons I'm so sure they matter is uh, Godric brings them up saying, look, even we had to fight in the Blackfire rebellions thanks to being beholden to our overlords, the Sunderlands. The Sunderlords, the Sunderlands are the ones who rule the, the three sisters. So the Borals have to do fealty to them. And well, they're not happy that they were dragged into two different, apparently two different, the first and third, it seems like, were the ones they were in. And they had to probably pay ransoms or restitutions or suffer some sort of losses for that. And well, it just hasn't been good for them. Anytime they rise for a king, it just doesn't work out. Like this is a history of just better if they stay out of things. And they're not pretty, they're not terribly capable of doing a lot of help anyway because of they're poor. And well, that seems, that's true. I mean, they're, Lord Borrell wasn't like concealing his wealth or something. Well, maybe he was, but he, his roof was actually leaking. So it doesn't seem, if he's, if he's concealing his wealth, he's really going full bore with the, with the lie. He's really committing to it. It also, in Fire and Blood, we know that the Sunderlands crowned a queen during Aegon's conquest. And we're like, we're an independent nation now. Like, hmm. That didn't hold for very long. <laughs> so they, soon enough, Torrin Stark was getting ready to head there and Vagar and Visenya were going to go. And they're like, actually, never mind, never mind. Sorry, forget that. <laughs> they didn't want to get burned by Vagar. Yeah, so they gave up pretty quickly on that. Michael Shelton says there were people in Cornwall known as wreckers who would lure ships onto the rocks in order to loot them. So this is a, a real world example. That's uh, Cornwall is the arm that juts off the southern tip of England going westward. Right on. Tree Girl also notices the bridge of black basalt that Davos walks over. And when black basalt is wet, it looks like the, the oily black stone. And there's some possibility that the oily black stone is basalt, maybe modified basalt. For more on the oily black stone, the strange stone, check out our Great Empire of Dawn episode. Also, the way the night lamp is described is a lot like the tower card in tarot, which is a segue for me to be able to mention that our very own Rebea, Lady of Waves, is her nickname. How perfect is that, given this chapter, has been has started doing for fun some A Song of Ice and Fire character 
tarot readings for each chapter or for some of the chapters each week, or for one character each week gets a reading. And those have been pretty fun. Check it out on our Facebook group. I really love the description of that stew. It's so tasty sounding. There's a site called a feastofstarlight.com, just feastofstarlight.com. I believe Ashay is pasting the link into the chat right now, but you can just look it up, feastofstarlight.com. They made up the recipe based on this, uh, on the description. And I love the, the quote, it was the sort of stew that warmed a man right down to his bones. Just the thing for a wet, cold night. Davos spooned it up gratefully. To me, it's another example too, of not just of George's food descriptions, which we are well familiar with how great they are, but it's the sensory description. Remember how I've been talking about how that's a big part of this book about getting us to trigger or to feel our own senses, to think of taste and smell and touch and sound and all that. And, and what did I leave out? Sight. <laughs> and uh, so just more little bits like that where we were put into a character's sense, not just their thoughts and their intellect and their, and their conflicts. And it comes with yet another cannibal reference. <laughs> I just described how tasty it is, but to Godric Borle, again, it's a little matter of perspective. He mentions that I only eat the, the spider crabs if they're mixed into the sister stew because it makes me feel a cannibal. And then he points at his sigil. His sigil is the spider crab. This is, Nina believes, set up for the fray pies when we have multiple frays in a pie <laughs> as well as all the regular food that's in there. And of course, it's not just the setup for the fray pies, but the mentioning of cannibalism just triggers so many other thoughts because the cannibalism theme is really ramping up. Carol Funk, Super Chat, says, I have a Westeros cookbook and my daughter made me sister stew for my birthday down to the saffron. It was delicious. Oh, so it's also in the Westeros cookbook. So there's maybe two versions of it out there. So that's cool. Maybe we'll have to work out both versions. And how cool that your daughter did that for you, Carol. That's awesome. You um, Sounds like you raised your daughter well. She's making you sister stew for your birthday. That's... All right, now we do John 3. One realm, one God, one king, a.k.a. the one with non-mance burning. We ended the last John chapter with an execution. Looks like we're starting this one with the same as we see Mance for the first time since the battle beneath the wall. We actually do see Mance, even though Mance is not the one being burned because we do see Rattleshirt, and that's the actual Mance. And the chapter begins like this. They brought forth the king beyond the wall with his hands bound by hempen rope and a noose around his neck. Mance's denials and frantic yellings are easily dismissed the first time, right? You're like, he denies who he is. He's denying his kingship. He's denying, he's talking about witchery and all this stuff. It's through John, filtered through John's perspective. John isn't even registering the specific words a lot of times. He's like, he's just yelling about this and that. You don't get the, a lot of times you don't get the specific dialogue. John is not aware that glamours exist. So why would it even cross his mind that this would be somebody else Later, he's going to learn about it. And then maybe it will cross his mind more often. He's like, wait, actually, is that a glamour? And that actually has happened into the fandom as well. The moment glamours were fully revealed definitively to be a thing, it kind of had a bad effect, I have to say, a negative impact on theorizing within this fandom. People started agree. coming up with some bad ideas. I would also say that in world... That would mess me up. Yeah, right? I would not. I would be so paranoid. I would not trust anyone. Life, it would be rough. You'd have to have some sort of other signal. Like that you'd have to change. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you would. In fact, this is a, a concept introduced 
and gone very deep in in this story. It's uh, The Dying of the Light, George's first full-length novel. And uh, this whole concept of how can you really tell someone who someone is. Uh, and it involves similar, like, skin-changing sort of concepts and flaying as well. So some of the early concepts of the Boltons and stuff like this, I, again, reiterate my promise that we'll do that book one day. So John is clearly prepared in advance to end Mance's suffering. His archers, the four of them, respond to a prearranged signal. He's like, okay, guys, pull out your arrows. Shoot him now. Now, they, they, he's like, now, and they do it. So it was obviously prearranged. Some part mercy, but on the legal end, he still has jurisdiction over Mance's life. Just like he's been fighting with Stannis over this exact thing. He's like, look, those, these are my castles. These are the Night's Watch castles. You can't just take them. Same thing here. That's a deserter to the Night's Watch. We get to execute him. He said our words. He didn't swear an oath to you, Stannis. He swore an oath to the Night's Watch. We should be the ones to execute him. But that's just Stannis is being the 800-pound gorilla and taking it for himself. Though technically, the arrows kill him. This is the first of many burnings in this book. It's interesting, Nina writes, that the wall is weeping when the false manse is burned. Is that because of Melisandre's powers? Is the heat generated so great? Is the magic part of it? Uh, certainly, the, the heat of the flames is, is mentioned as intense in this one. The wildlings are backing away, covering their eyes. It's just really bad. She's going to later think in her one chapter about this being a hinge of the world and how her powers were strengthened at the wall. And that is probably it. That's probably the explanation. This is another example of we get the answer before we get the riddle. Lightbringer is as bright as we've seen it too, apparently. John says, not like this. Never before like this. It's really bright. People are covering their eyes. A horse throws his rider. It's so bright. It's really outstanding. And clearly more so than it's been before. John says, it's the sun made steel. John and thus the reader wonder if this is the effect of the king's blood and the burning and the sacrifice, but of course it can't be. But when you read this chapter for the first time, you, you, not, you don't know the hinge of the world business necessarily, or you haven't processed that fully. And you don't know that that's not Mance. <laughs> Especially if you've seen the TV show. That's one that's really a real big whoa for people who saw the show first and then read this chapter. They were not seeing that coming at all because in the show, it was straight up Mance. It really was Mance that was burned. So... That's a real twist for show watchers. A big open question is whether or not Stannis knows about the switch. I think he does. I'm not super confident, but I'm pretty confident. Uh, he, his line to John about talking to him, he says, I talked with him for a while and he's cunning. That's interesting. Mance's cunning is mm, that he would cite that. And also, we know without that conversation, we can just guess that Mance could be, could be potentially very useful to Stannis given his knowledge of Winterfell, his knowledge of the North, and of course, his skills as a, as a leader and as a, as a fighter. Mance would have handled his death more bravely, right? If, this is the, if that had been the real Mance standing in a cage there, he would have not screamed and cried. I mean, he would have screamed because the pain is so intense, but he wouldn't have been yelling about, it's not me and no, blah, blah, blah. It would have been a lot calmer. He would have been braver about facing his death because that's Mance Raider. That's just the guy he is. Well, doesn't it serve Stannis and Melisandre's purpose more to make the king of the free folk look like a, more of a weakling when he's going to his death? So there's another advantage to Stannis and Melisandre here by doing the switch, which again, argues that Stannis is aware. Because Stannis, one thing we've seen about Stannis 
Yeah, he cares about justice and duty, but he cares about the appearance of it more than the actual doing of it. He cares about both. He cares about advantages and winning more so than adhering to a perfect sense of justice. I say that while still believing he is probably the most just of all the kings we've seen so far. Arguably, not definitely. Um, but in this, he's he very human in that he still prefers to take advantages over being pure. And we've seen Stannis was willing to burn his own cousin. Of course he's willing to be deceitful about this if he's willing to burn an innocent. Come on. Some people think Stannis would not do this kind of deception. I think that's the poor counter-argument. There are good counter-arguments here, but Stannis wouldn't do that isn't one of them. He's desperate for advantages. He's desperate to get back in the fight. Mance is an advantage. If he can have an, if he can make use of that advantage, he's not going to throw it away just to make justice seem like it's being done when he has a way to do both. He can have his cake and eat it too. So I think that's very clear. But let's not also forget the burning of the horn. This horn is a really big part of the chapter. It's really interesting. I'm really fascinated by what this thing was. Here's the quote. Joramun had died thousands of years ago, but Mance had found his grave beneath a glacier high up in the frost fangs. And Joramun blew the horn of winter and woke giants from the earth. Ygritte had told John that Mance never found the horn. She lied or else man's kept it secret even from his own. So I agree with Tormund that it's a shame that the thing was burned. Like, that's what Tormund's going to say later. Eight feet long. I mean, damn, what was that thing? <laughs> Melisandre is grandiose as usual, and given the deception and the execution, why not be grandiose about the horn? She calls it the horn of darkness, and again refers to Stannis as Azor Ahai. And this is Melisandre's genius here. She's a master of misdirection, illusion, and persuasion. This is a performance and a microcosm of her overall game. Real power backed by fake power, which amplifies that real power. Absolutely no one actually knows what that horn would have done if blown. We never saw it blown. We have no idea. So literally no one can claim to know what it would have done. But Melisandre acts as if it's confirmed to be what man's claimed a force capable of taking down the wall. It's very clever. It's like fake artifact Aikido. Mance is the one that convinced everyone it could do that. She's just saying, yeah, he's right. <laughs> she's using the perception that Mance generated as an advantage for her and Stannis. She's saying, Azor Ahai is burning the horn of darkness for y'all. He's the good guy here. Wouldn't have been possible without Mance making that horn into a big deal in the first place. It's really well done by she just totally pivots. She just 180s Mance's intent here. And I think it's fascinating and clever. Now, here's a look ahead, right? Her POV, we only get her one POV, but she does think back on this Rattlemance burning, and it's, it's useful for us to take that into account while we're uh, analyzing this scene. She made it sound a simple thing and easy. They need never know how difficult it had been or how much it had cost her. That was a lesson Melisandre had learned long before Ashai. The more effortless the sorcery appears, the more men fear the sorcerer. When the flames had licked at Rattleshirt, the ruby at her throat had grown so hot that she feared her own flesh might start to smoke and blacken. Thankfully, 
Lord Snow had delivered her from that agony with his arrows. While Stannis had seethed at the defiance, she had shuddered with relief. So there you go. It's exactly what I was talking about. She's pretending the magic is easy to make a show, to make her seem more powerful. She suffers in silence. And that's kind of ironic, uh, but true. Um, at the same time, he looks at Val, John does, and sees how strong she is because she's just taking, uh, watching all this and not blinking and handling it so well. And John thinks the women are the strong ones. And meanwhile, Melisandre's here suffering, like physically, great pain so much that she's afraid her, her own flesh is going to start smoking and blackening. It's that intense. Other people have the same thought about the women being the strong ones. Arisa Oakhart has that thought. Now, if right here with John, Stannis, his speech here to the free folk, it's really quite something too. Is, I, we're not meant to see this as like good, but it is strong. <laughs> Quote. Westeros has but one king, said Stannis. His voice rang harsh with none of Melisandre's music. With this sword, I defend my subjects and destroy those who menace them. Bend the knee and I promise you food, land, and justice. Kneel and live or go and die. The choice is yours. This isn't really a choice. He's not offering them a real choice. It's technically a choice. But like, what kind of choice is this? It's, it, you can't really refuse when you're desperate. This chant of one realm, one God, one king is pretty fascist in its imagery, really. You may not agree. You may feel differently, but I don't think George wants us to look at this and think, good, this is good. This is positive. Despite the lives being saved, that aspect is good, but that's not the whole picture. You can't just say, lives saved, good. That's it, and be, that be the end of it. it, it does, it's not that simple. We all know that saving a life is just the beginning. What good is it to save a life if you just abandon them to die 10 minutes later? You haven't saved anything. A few of them still reject it. They do treat it as the choice that it ultimately truly is. But, quote, But most came on. Behind them was only cold and death. Ahead was hope. They came on, clutching their scraps of wood until the time came to feed them to the flames. Relor was a jealous deity, ever hungry. So the new god devoured the corpse of the old and cast gigantic shadows of Stannis and Melisandre upon the wall, black against the ruddy red reflections on the ice. I mean, that doesn't sound good, does it? It doesn't sound positive or uplifting. It sounds like, yeah, it's good their lives are being saved, but that's the only positive here. All these other things, it's like, well, they're, they're facing awfulness after that. Later, too, there's some amazing imagery. The pit fire was burning low, and the king's shadow in the wall had shrunk to a quarter of its former height. So it's, it's this powerful moment, but it, it doesn't last very long. I think that's maybe the subtext, is this, this, this great grand display is not going to carry forward the way they want it to because they're just, they're not emboldening loyalty here. There's no compassion. There's no humanity here. Burning a chunk of weirwood is not to be taken lightly. This is huge. Imagine a huddled group of refugees that want access to a country and to do it, you, to get access to that country, they have to burn a few pages of the Bible or the Quran or the Torah or something like that. Just think of a holy book and to get acts, to be able to be accepted, to get food, you have to burn sacred parts of your old religion. Like 
Are you really going to be that thankful? You're going to be like, well, I'm not going to say anything about it because like I'm in a tough spot right now and I'm not going to, I'm not going to be looking up with joy and compassion towards this guy like he's really my savior. I'm going to be like, well, thanks. Because this guy, he, that's not what Stannis wants. He's not out. He, he's very clearly not here out of compassion. And, and Dollar, as Dollar's Ed breaks it down for us here in his brilliant, sarcastic manner. Not to say that the wildlings mean us harm. I we hacked their gods apart and made them burn the pieces, but we gave them onion soup. What's a god compared to a nice bowl of onion soup? I could do with one myself. To surrender deeply held beliefs or face certain death. This is hateful stuff. Again, no compassion. And on top of that, they've lost all this other hope. Not only are they starving, but they had this hope in that horn, which was just burned in front of them too. So, and their leader. He's not saving them so much as he is conscripting them. And that's, that's what rubs me the wrong way here. Now, he does let them go if they want, but, but only back north. Like, if you're coming into my realm, you have to obey and you have to fight for me. Now, of course, there's two sides to this because that's true for a lot of them. But like, you know, the women and children aren't going to have to be conscripted. They actually have a decent deal here. They still have to give up their gods, though. It's awful. But at least they're not going to be forced to fight for Stannis. Recall that, yeah, he does want to use them in his army. He's going to put them in the front. That's his plan. And it's probably his plan at this moment. And that switches when John says, that's a terrible idea, man. Do not put wildlings in your army and go traipsing around the north because the North will not join you if you do that. And you need the North far more than you need these wildlings. And of course, John's right, but he's not telling the whole story there. He needs to think that through a little more because you know who hates the wildlings as much as those Northern Lords is his own brothers, his own sworn brothers. The Night's Watch ate the wildlings too. Quote, The realm will curse us all for this, declared Sir Alistair Thorne in a venomous tone. Every honest man in Westeros will turn his head and spit at the mention of the Night's Watch. What would you know of honest men? Yeah, I wish he had said that out loud, but he doesn't because he's the Lord Commander and he's, you know, he's got to be more disciplined with his words towards his subordinates. But that is almost exactly the same line that Lord Piper says to the phrase in Jamie's War Council. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I say what I mean like an honest man, but what would you know of the ways of honest men? <laughs> I love that. But this is just that offensive. Come, it's again. George does it so well because it, the guy expressing the sentiment is Sir Alistair, and we hate Sir Alistair. We're inclined to disagree with him reflexively because he's just that terrible. He's like, I mean, he is friends with Channel Slint, so of course. But here he's saying what a lot of people are thinking, and a lot of those people are decent and good people. This attitude that disliking of the Wildlings is not the province only of the bad guys. A lot of decent brothers are not, are slow to accept this. Some of them are going to come around on it because John's going to convince them. But John's job of convincing isn't very well done. John is, does the same thing he does with Gilly where he's just like, look, this is the reality. You must accept it. Rather than spending a little more time gaining consensus, winning them over, he forces it on them. And well, they force knives on him. It's just too hard for them to accept these guys as allies. They've been enemies for too long. So many Night's Watch brothers take this really personally because the free folk have killed their friends. And they don't love this R'hllor stuff either. They, we see this expressed by John's friends. They poke fun. They're like, ah, the night is dark and full of turnips. And John's like, man, you shouldn't make fun of people's beliefs. And they're like, 
she makes fun of ours. She says there's only one God. You know, so this is a theme of John's arc. We see Bowen Marsh come up and act polite about it. He's like, you know, John, um, some of the wild, some of the, some of your fellow brothers are worried about uh, how close you're getting to Stannis. Now, John doesn't answer this as well as he could have, but the, the truth is that Stannis is kind of pushing John around, demanding a lot. John has to give him something. He, he's able to stand up to him on a lot of things and, and keep that to a minimum. But Stannis is demanding and overbearing, and there's, there's only so much he can push back against that without causing problems, causing new problems. Like, stop one problem, cause new problems. And Bowen Marsh isn't necessarily uh, aware of that difficulty. But again, John doesn't describe it very well. It's a, again, a call back to John's leadership style being a little incomplete. He needs to explain things a little more. But by framing all this through Alistair and Bowen, who we don't know is the, the guy to really worry about, it's actually really ironic. John is being confronted by Bowen, and Bowen is saying things that we know to be worried about because we know what happens later. But John is still thinking about Alistair and like, hmm, I'm worried about that guy. <laughs> Whoops. A little more kill the boy stuff in this chapter too. It's, it's, it's almost more painful in some ways because it's more personal. We actually are in his head. If we were in Gilly's point of view and we were, George was describing her thoughts, it would be a lot more heartrending where we have this sort of barrier between imagining what's there and, and not fully experiencing it through a POV. With John here, we get it firsthand in his mind that he's separate from his friends now. He's sad that he can't sit down and have dinner with them. This is basic comfort. The basic, simple joys of friendship that are gone for him. Now, you see, he's kind of wrong, though. <laughs> Again, he's going too far. He's being too hard on himself. He's still allowed to have friends. He has to not put their friendship, his friendship with them above his duties. But in his mind, he just can't have friends at all, which I think is a little too strict. And so he's creating a little misery for himself, thinking he has to. And this is that love-duty dichotomy that Eamon introduced to him just so long ago. It's like, I think maybe Eamon was maybe a little too strict with that, like you can't have love and duty. Well, they do, they are warring concepts, but they don't completely eliminate each other. It's so sad, John, the way the chapter ends too. John's like, well, this is me, this is it. I, this is what I gotta be. This is the rest of my life. No friends, just duty. Ugh, that is very bleak, isn't it? It's almost like, yeah, death might improve his circumstances because at least it gives him an out from the Night's Watch. Maybe, I don't know. Nina catches what's possibly another biblical reference. George is just throwing a couple of Bible references here with first we have the belly of the whale. Now we have Val stood on the platform as still as if she had been carved of salt. That is a peculiar reference, but it's definitively found in the Bible. Lot's wife, she turned into a, he turned into, or she turned into a pillar of salt for looking back at Sodom while she fled before the city was destroyed, which you, you weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> Not sure why George was getting a little extra biblical with some of these takes here, but maybe there's an overarching reason, a connecting point for some of that. Maybe one of y'all can uh, speak up and, and make, a, make a connection here. The sealing of the gates is an interesting point here. Bowen suggests they do that. And this is, this is, a little hard to keep straight because if you have a memory of the show, John was the one arguing to seal the gates in the show. And here he's, our, he's the one arguing, no, we need to have... He makes kind of the same argument Gior Mormont makes. He's like, look, we can't seal the gates because we need to have 
visibility. We need to be able to send men out and scout. If we can't do that, then we, we're blind. We have to be able to see where the wildlings arm, armies are and all that, especially given the remaining ones out there are some of the most dangerous ones. We've got a lot of the ones that joined that crossed the barrier, that threw their wood in the fire, that surrendered to Stannis. Those are among the least dangerous. Some of them are dangerous, but they're among the least dangerous. The, the more dangerous ones are going to come later. A lot of them are going to join as well. But then there's the ones who don't join at all, like the Weeper and a few giants and some other characters. So more on that as those plot lines develop more. Uh, perhaps a little literary uh, symbolism here. Melisandre described as a red shadow. Uh, Drogon is the winged shadow, and we have the constant reminders of the others as white shadows and the Kingsguard as white shadows. Hmm, yes. And power is a shadow on the walls, Ashea is writing in the notes here, right on cue. That is very true. Very good call. And that is uh, how all these things are, are portrayed, right? They're all metaphorical emblems of power. Whereas that is what power itself is. Very cool. Deverell Lynch uh, brings up why green and other colored flames when the horn burns? Yeah, that's curious. It's another thing about the horn that just has me overflowing with curiosity. What the heck was up with that? Yeah, why is there other colors? What is going on with the runes we're burning? I don't know. <laughs> I wish I had an answer. It might be Melisandre's trickery. Maybe she was just sprinkling a little extra color in there to make the show look a little more spectacular. But maybe she didn't have to. Maybe that just happens anyway because it's just, well, there's magic going on. And her voice. Also, we should take note of her voice, the way it sounds. And it, there may be magic in it, the, the music of it. John notes how mellifluous it is and how not only that Stannis' isn't, but we should consider that there might be some magic in there. There might be some mild hypnotism going on. After all, when she speaks a word to undo the magic of Mance's glamour in front of John, in her own mind, she thinks she said a word. Mance hears it, John hears it, but they both hear a word different than what she actually says. So the concept is introduced in her own chapter that she can say things that other people hear differently, which is clearly magic. <laughs> so some of her influence through her speech is like there's an undertone of she's using like a mild form of supernatural hypnotism or some sort of convincing or something's going on there. And that's a good catch because uh, I don't think I noticed that. Or I didn't make that connection between the later point and, and the speech now. And again, the Dornishman's wife is mentioned here. I, I brought that up earlier, but this is where it's actually mentioned. Man, it's, it's brought up and then Mance is going to bring it up when he's rattle shirt in, in Melisandre's chapter as a, well, I've lived a full life. <laughs> you know, he's like, if I die, then, well, I've kissed the Dornishman's wife. And of course, he's going to sing the song in Winterfell in front of the Boltons and change the lyrics to A Northman's Daughter. And well, that's pretty cool. We'll end on that note. Literally, that note. Hey, it's a song. Perfect. Last week, we covered 161 minutes, 34 seconds of the books. This week, it was 149 minutes, 21 seconds. So far, we've covered 442 minutes, 21 seconds out of the 2920 minutes-ish of books total. We've covered 15.1%. Lots left to go. 
As always, you can check the video to see how much we edited out in the pod version. Usually it's 5 to 15, occasionally a little more, but that's the average. Don't forget to like the video and like the podcast version. Leave us a review if you don't mind. It would only take you about 60 seconds. We'd really appreciate it. And it does a lot for getting us noticed by the algorithms, both podcast algorithms and YouTube algorithms. Also, we could use a few new reviews. We had a weird one. Someone accused me on a review of, of promoting domestic terrorism. Like what? Like you guys listen to the podcast. When the hell did I do that? <laughs> if you know, please tell me. Cause I'm like, wait, when did I do that? I allude to real world politics, but I never bring them up directly. So I don't think I did that. Someone <laughs> but, else hey. is going to review and be like, and yet again, he brings up domestic terrorism. <laughs> so I mean, weird, you brought man. it up just now, Aziz. Oh, I guess you're right. Technically, I did bring it up. <laughs> so I mentioned, as, as usual, at the end of the episode, we try to mention the other episodes of our amongst our scripted content that this one refers to. Sir, one of the mirror shield was mentioned early on. Bitter Steel, the Golden Company, and pretty much the whole Blackfire series, but particularly those two. Nymeria's episodes are, are on point, given all the stuff around the Roin here. Great Empire of the Dawn came up, given the Strange Stone. Uh, I'm sure there's some others, too. The where I mentioned briefly our Werewood episodes, vis-a-vis -vis the, the characters' looks and all that. Also want to uh, throw out, since we talked about Dunkin' Egg so much today, we are going to be covering Dunkin' Egg on Valar Reredis eventually. I have pointed that out before, but you may have missed it. We're going to have Sean for that. So that'll be fun. Next week... Five chapters, not four. All right, that's going to be fun. I think it might be the second longest batch that we have. We don't have a six-chapter week or anything, but in terms of audiobook length, I think this is the longest or second longest of all of the Valor Readers for Dance with Dragons. So uh, I will be clear on that when we get there next week. Those five chapters include Daenerys 2. This is the Quay. <laughs> AKA Escalating Ethical Entanglements. Reek 1, Welcome to the Dread Fort, AKA The Gang Me Meets Theon. Brand 2, Old Nan's Tales Come Alive, AKA The Gang Meets Bloodraven. Tyrion 4, The Old Man of the River Comes Alive, AKA An Education Fit for a King. And Davos 2, Old Fishfoot Doesn't Come Alive, <laughs> AKA An Onion Eats an Apple in White Harbor. What is he, bobbing for apples in the harbor? Yeah, something like that. Well, thanks everyone. This was particularly fun. I feel like I was even more emphatic than usual. I think I, I got into it even more. I always get into it, but like, I, I feel like I was like even more of like a preacher today. Just I feel like you patted <laughs> yourself on the back less too than normal just now. Really? <laughs> no, of course not. No, of course not. <laughs> no, I agree, Aziz. I, li I like it when I'm more enthusiastic. Who is the best and enthusiastic. <laughs> so um, thank you everyone for coming. Thanks for the live comments, for the great questions, the great takes. There's so many good ones. As always, you guys bring up things that I didn't notice, things that Nina and Joe didn't notice, things that Shay didn't notice, things that a lot of people didn't notice. And that's the, the brilliance of this fandom is there are so many things to notice and you guys do it. We all do it together. Thanks as well to our History of Westeros mods who post the chapters each week on Facebook, generating discussion, showing off cool artwork, all that fun stuff. 
Thanks to our regular commenters on all of our social media sites, Flick, Facebook, Slack, Discord. Lots of good chats happening over there. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the maps and video intro. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Reedus music intro. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for our regular intro outro music. Thanks to our engineer for making our episodes sound better than they otherwise would. Big, huge thanks to our patrons for the financial support. Support is underselling it. It's really the reason we're able to do this at all. So lifeblood, <laughs> that's what you all are. Thank you very much for that. And go to Here Be Dragons. It's only 10 minutes from now if you're watching live. If not, catch it after the fact. If you didn't, it's their anniversary stream. Very cool. Amy Blackfire, a regular commenter and member of the community, is a guest today. So lots of reasons to check that out. I hope you do. I'm going to be in the chat myself. I probably won't be there right at the beginning, but I'll be heading over there soon. Need a short break after this, but see you there, I hope. And if not, well, see you next week for more Valar Reads.